getting those scars were hard. They're there. They're, they're there. They're a part of you. They will not go away. We cannot ignore them. We cannot pretend that they do not exist. They are a part of you. So let it be your story, not your story of limiting beliefs. That limiting belief that I got to go now. And that is you've got to change your limiting beliefs. You can use to overcome your self-limiting beliefs. ...of what are called subconscious limiting beliefs. And we all... ...is allowing yourself to be controlled by your limiting beliefs. Learn how to get rid of your limiting beliefs. Now, moving beyond your limiting beliefs... ...is to show you how to crack the code to one of your own limiting beliefs. ...is a way to transform limiting beliefs. So the sort of these negative, these limiting beliefs... ...break those limiting belief systems that I had, and to me was huge. And that's double fortified. I've not only proven my limiting belief, but I'm right... And that's a big plus for me. everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Remember when I said I didn't know if I'd do a part two? Well, there's going to be three parts because uh, so many of you listened to the last episode and that's really nice. Thank you. Um, I had a lot more to say and I did a lot more detailed research. So if you're open to hearing some of it, uh, welcome back. I am here today because, well, a couple things. This episode's going to be a little half and half. The first, so the first half, I answer some emails. Some are just like clarifications from the last episode. Some are pushing back. Some are, you know, talking about the Rise Conference. And then I kind of go into uh, this Venn diagram I kind of brought up last week in passing. And it wasn't a metaphor. No, no, no. It is, in fact, real. I've been drawing on four circles, uh, like it's 1995, <laughs> since October. Uh, I think I've told you before, I, I really believe... You, you, you need to sort complicated thoughts. You don't get mad. You get a Venn. And I made one called Benevolent Groups That Subsist Off of Psychological Manipulation Via Exploitation of, of Vulnerable People, a diagram. It has four circles, large-scale self-help celeb gurus and some coaches like Rachel Hollis, Tony Robbins, most MLMs, cults, and extremist fundamentalist religions. Now, it's not easy to, you know, go over a graph, you know, with the ears but we're going to try. Uh, so I guess it depends on what you're interested in. Uh, first hour, second hour, I'm not sure if you want to listen all the way through, but everything I'm talking about eventually does tie together. You know, my agenda is really nothing other than to prove through uh, historical data, through mentorship relationships, through commonalities about format, what I'm calling the made for more for, uh, the audience, the positioning, the, the, the format, and the delivery um, there's common threads throughout these amongst these four groups in a way that I think is unique. And, uh, besides just pointing out how they can, you know, have some parallels, I want to point out how they're potentially intertwined. Now, I don't know anything for certain. A lot of this is probably, you know, my selective internet search and all opinions are mine and all uh, audio clips are fair use because this is commentary and research and, you know, education, which for those purposes falls under the Fair Use Act. Um, but I do think it's worth pointing out that the origins of many of the delivery methods and formats in which 
uh, Rachel Hollis has conducted her RISE conferences is alarmingly similar to, yes, things that occur at MLMs, extremist religions, and cults. And based on her mentorship lineage, I think uh, we have a real case for why we can once and for all prove that regardless of its modern-day application, its roots are dark, its roots are manipulative, and we need to be careful of the things that influence us. But welcome back to Rachel Hollis in the Rose-Colored Glass Ceiling, part two. You know, to me, a big reason I did like do, I've been doing a bunch of research over time is like, I've always been interested in this phenomenon, but without being a fan, it's, I needed to kind of dig into more of the context. And before I even ventured on this podcast, it it was almost like, uh, I don't know how to just, like Rachel Hollis was almost like the two and a half men of self-help gurus. You know, like you're told everybody watches it. It crushes the ratings. It's so great. And you're like, what am I missing? Like, I don't, uh, how can everybody watch it? But I know nobody who does. I've never cracked a smile watching this show. That's kind of a watch out for me. And when I dismiss things that just because they're popular and I don't understand them, it actually makes more sense to dig in and try to figure out why it's popular. And I just, yeah. All of today's information is just a lot of research I've done over time. Today on Instagram, I said, do you want me to talk through more detail about the RISE conference and, you know, the diagram of these linkages that I've been seeing through my own research? Or do you want to just focus on listener emails? And I think now it's that maybe like it's a little bit in favor of listener emails. But then I had a bunch of DMs of people being like, crap, I haven't written in yet. So given that it's Thursday and I put the episode out Sunday, I kind of realized it's not fair to not give people enough time because I, I, you know, I understand not everybody has two and a half hours to spare to listen to me ramble about Rachel Hollis. So if you want a little bit more time, so what I'll probably do, I'm going to do this episode in the interim that's going to mix listener emails with some of what I think are these cult religion MLM <laughs> intersections. And I want to talk through a lot of stuff like um, and play clips that, about her irresponsibly soliciting people to face trauma. Uh draw comparisons to tactics used by people like Keith Raniere. Chicken soup comes up at one point, not for the common cold, for the soul. Uh, but anyway, I'm excited. So, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, an official journalist. Rather, I guess I'm an armchair researcher, armchair journalist, that just likes to compile information I find interesting. I like to call it being overcome by the rabbit holy spirit. I don't really like the nighttime. I hate when the day's over. I used to make people sign up all night contracts at sleepovers as a kid so I could, you know, form alliances and ensure I'd have company in the dark depths of the hour because I've literally never in my life slept soundly in a sleeping bag on a hard floor. Like, are people crazy? Um, but yeah, the rabbit holy spirit, I just, you know, I want to remind people, like people loved it, especially the boss babes. God, the Huns came out hard for Netflix last week in that clip I played and so did Rachel. And since a lot of you here might be also very into like deep diving and researching stuff, don't let people shame your, you for your interests. I'm so tired of hearing that scrolling and being on the computer and being on social media or whatever is rotting your brain. The, my brain has expanded from more information cruising through Reddit and TikTok and Quora and the like over the past several years when I've been down, when I can't sleep. I feel so lucky that I have an entire world of information and perspectives available to me to choose from while we should never go full Q and take any as gospel. I do think that it's such a cool thing that we have access to so much and there's a market for people that want to have dialogue about this. 
And um, I just can't reiterate enough, like never feel bad about what you like. I, that was one of the reasons I started this podcast was I felt like people trivialized pop culture and it mattered. And yeah, I just, I don't know. I shouldn't have to go like, I don't know, like play badminton for it to be a hobby. Why did I say that? What, what, what badminton? I, I could not think of a single hobby besides badminton. Um, uh, what's a hobby? I, I don't have to run marathons to be using my time well. You know, I scroll into the deep and I have a great time and I'd like to be left alone. So anyway, um, one thing that was so incredibly helpful was hearing from different, uh, you know, coaches that are legitimately trying to do good work, especially counselors and therapists and, and people that are more in um, these service type roles that are designed to help people. They were like the biggest, the biggest thing is that it is this type of work has nothing to do with the person. You're not supposed to be aspirational. You're not supposed to use your life as the model. Then you wouldn't be a practitioner of the you know, principles you're trying to express to people to help them improve their circumstances. Anyone has life experience. Anyone can say, be just like me. But a person out to help people needs some sort of third-party accreditation, education, research background in this stuff, or else they're literally just professional storytellers. And I'm going to get that get to that in a minute. I got emails being like, you're too closely tying Rachel to MLMs, or, you know, you're too closely tying these what's just trying to help people and motivate people on the surface to uh, like being cult-like, and that's not really fair. Well, you know, this is what's beautiful about a Venn diagram. It's, you know, it's messy. Like I said, like you can think about what's mutually exclusive, what's collectively exhaustive. Some things are standalone and some things have overlap. Many things about cults and self-help gurus have standalone things that don't overlap. But I think uh, almost spookily, there are areas of overlap across these four areas that you wouldn't know unless you looked into the origins of uh, where a lot of this literature came from, where a lot of the verbiage came from, and where a lot of the motivation is in terms of the usage of psychotherapeutic tactics. So anyways, I think too, I, the first episode was a little bit windy. I don't know if I got my core point across. And a few people were like, can you explain like succinctly the rose-colored glass ceiling? And all I was really saying is like, if I can describe this in two minutes, um, I think that what happened in the the 2010s is women were starting to feel frustrated by a lack of material movement in, in, in positions of power and elected officials. There are more Fortune 500 CEOs named John than there are women. Less than 3% of all VC investment went to women-led companies. Only one-fifth of U.S. VC went to startups with at least one woman in the founder team. Um, the The... The venture capital dollars going to women-funded companies, according to the Harvard Business Review, have barely moved since 2012. And then when you look at the 10 venture leading venture firms in the U.S., Crunchbase found that only 3% of the companies are invested in since 2015 are led by a Black or Latinx founder. And the report also highlights data from the nonprofit organization Black VC that shows 81% of all VC firms don't have a single Black investor. This is the type of stuff I should have gone into more detail on because um, I know there's a lot more that goes into feminism, and I'm not trying to make a solely capitalist argument. Um, and we have many, many issues with equality that are the result of systemic disadvantages and implicit biases, motherhood bias, among other things. Um, but for the sake of making an argument about Rachel being a woman in business, I really do, as a woman who started a business, a woman who sat there trying to you know, build her own company and thought, this is so incredibly hard and excruciating. Like, I agree about the hard work. I don't glamorize it. Rather, I was trying to say, like, 
It was so hard for me and I'm in the most desirable of circumstances. How the hell would anybody else start a business? And if we want women to be empowered, it's not only important that they feel good and confident and competent and, you know, kind of more the surface level stuff that I'm arguing this self-help takes care of. From my perspective, if you're a woman doing business coaching and you are trying to empower women in a business sense to like chase their dreams, women are only empowered as long as they are economically capable. And the data about women in business is, is legitimately staggering. And if you want to call yourself a, a feminist that's working toward women's empowerment, toward women's in, women in business, that's teaching these concepts, trying to get women to you know shame them for their nine to fives and start their own gig, and you're not considering the intersection of how that might, how difficult that might be depending on any sort of discrimination you're facing, whether it's race, disability, socioeconomic status, how uh, an individual's access to capital depends on a variety of factors. And moreover, I thought the real crime, as I said, was her not being explicitly clear about time. From my perspective, if you want to start your own venture, only two things matter, time and money. Time is what can get you the competence and skills you need to be able to enter a new vertical, new industry, to build your own thing, to serve as every function of a business. It's so much effing work. Or you can have money that allows you to hire subject matter experts, expedite the process, you know, lessen the margin for air and kind of hit the ground running. Rachel did not clarify that she both had time because she outsourced help. And obviously we know somebody cleans her house and all those things. She never clarified that in Girl, Wash Your Face. And beyond that, she never spoke about how her husband had a seven figure salary when she started her blog when she started the media company, the event planning, all of that. She she was in the most desirable of circumstances, screaming at women that were at peak vulnerability buying a self-help book. She was yelling at them, saying they could be just like her without caveating the literal only two things that matter. So there was no zero empowerment of women to actually go for theirs in business. And if you're an actual woman in a leadership position in business that cares about getting more women into the talent funnel, getting more women in you know those Fortune 500 seats, getting more women as elected officials, whatever it is, more female entrepreneurs, more diverse female entrepreneurs, and you're not looking at that data, and you're not looking at how both you can manage people's expectations with time so they don't get into their own financial detriment, and looking at how you as a privileged white woman can offset uh, the inequities that exist within getting access to capital because, okay, you don't have time. Okay, you don't have money. There's still funding. And that's never discussed. And it's almost comical when you look at like an, a startup conference, you know, like a tech crunch or a, a trade organization that's actually about women's entrepreneurs. They are nothing like a Rise Business Conference. They're nothing like any of the business coaching on Instagram. And I think the distinction is important. While I don't want to make a solely capitalistic argument, if we're going to be talking business, women do not need the type of advice she's giving to be legitimately empowered. Women need the type of advice she's giving to legitimately stay in place and only to look up and have a really beautiful rose-colored glass ceiling we never shattered through because when we're only taking care of our individualistic capitalistic desires, we're not moving women as a whole. When we're not taking into account the intersectionality of the many experiences women come from, we're not moving as a whole. Their oppression exists within oppressed groups. And my, my feeling was over the past decade, women have kind of felt this false sense of empowerment, like, you know, lean into not only your own corporate job, like who you are, buy a shirt that says namaste in bed, make, you know, Instagrams about how you like dogs better than people, like own your truth, like I'm all for that. It's kind of the not like other girls movement paired with the girl boss movement where not like other girls empowered you to be more you and not do the things other girls were feeling like they had to do. And then the girl boss movement was really encouraging women to be entrepreneurs, be boss babes, to go for their own thing. It was like this really capitalistic brand of feminism that was kind of pressuring women into these leadership positions arbitrarily 
when it was really just kind of pandering to white women, many uh, very often calling them entrepreneurs, it's joining MLMs, which has nothing to do with entrepreneurship. That's why I go off on um, vague business coaching sometimes, Instagram coaches, the, the, those types of coaches of women that say they're in business that built uh, one or two businesses once that are largely based in just marketing practices. And it's people with minimal experience who haven't actually built businesses themselves, bootstrapped ground up in highly privileged positions, essentially making these courses of strictly marketing tools that are pretty much the, about building a business of coaching people how to build their businesses. It's the ultimate MLM. That's a big part of what I'm trying to prove here, too. And women with in a privileged position with, you know, minimal experience that are using their life story as a blueprint for how other people should run their lives, charge like four to $6,000 for this really high level unhelpful advice about their specific circumstances. And it's like this Rachel Hollis movement, I think started, expand a whole generation of Instagram influencers that think that they are these like entrepreneur boss babes. And it's just, it's not that they, I'm not minimizing what they've done. It's just a different type of business. It's, it's what they're doing is, is selling like, marketing. They're, they're selling how to sell to people. They're, they're not telling you how to build a supply chain, a manufacturing process, like operations, fulfillment. They're not telling you how to actually bootstrap, get funding. Like it's not entrepreneurship and it's sold as that. And it drives me insane. And to charge four to $6,000 when you already have money, when you're in a position of privilege, when you actually don't have ground up business experience and you're advertising yourself as an entrepreneur, it is highway robbery. And these like bloggery type people that do this infuriate me. Need a more bloggery term for highway robbery, but uh, okay, Friday robbery—that's what it is. People that say Friday that rob people of, out of their money. I think. Anyway, um, okay. So back to an earlier point. Let me. I'm gonna. Re, I'm gonna pepper in emails that have to do with this Venn diagram I'm walking through, and I hope this isn't, isn't confusing. And then the third episode will be all emails. Hi, Kate. Love the deep dive. I go back and forth. Do you think she just wanted to tell lighthearted stories? Yeah, that people could take or leave. I think she said in her Rise documentary to take or leave it. Out of context, it sounds bad, but it reads in full as her kind of talking to you over brunch. Um, I understand what you're saying. and I do think that's why a lot of women liked it. So I think the thing that you have to consider um, here is, uh, you know, what I was calling the maid for more for. The crime <laughs> here is is positioning is self-help this was a memoir masquerading as a self-help book and due to category alone had the potential to be absorbed as prescriptive in a sense uh normally self-help books are written by people with some credentials i mean ideally right uh and the thing with somebody who has been in research who has a phd who has some sort of accreditation they've probably been trained to uh, understand and frame concepts in a way that allows for some objectivity. So a, because a self-help book is about the reader's circumstances, a self-help book is not about the writers. And even if you use anecdotes and et cetera, there's still a way that a person who knew how to properly communicate, uh, you know, and handle nuance as it relates to circumstances or mental health um, and certainly wouldn't be shaming people. And a lot of people ask me my thoughts on like a Brene Brown, for example, um, because apparently I got in a DM that Rachel's compared herself to Brene Brown as being in the same field. And I understand like that, how that could be high level confusing, but Brene Brown is a PhD. Brene Brown's a licensed clinical social worker. Brene Brown's a research prof professor at the University of Houston. She spent 16 years studying things like vulnerability, shame, empathy, courage. 
She's five New York Times bestsellers. She she's a scholar. She's a researcher. She's an accomplished, accredited woman that talks about similar topics and knows how to talk about them in a way that is safe and does and hopefully does not compromise the mental health or well-being of the people she's speaking to. Um, well, Rachel exploits vulnerability. I think she fetishizes vulnerability, and that's evidence in her Rise conferences, which I'm going to play a clip for you in a second. So I think that um, bottom line is a person, you know, in the business of helping others is not in the business of bolstering themselves. Like I said, a, a self-help books about the reader's circumstances. A memoir is about the writer's circumstances. And one positions you as a practitioner and the other pra- positions you as a storyteller. And that really matters. And when watching Made for More, it's kind of interesting because she tries to caveat this that she does, she expects people to take it or leave it. You're absolutely right um, to the person that wrote that email. I'm just going to keep them anonymous. I assume that's what you guys want me to do. Um, she says people can take it or leave it, but then she kind of gives this exact sort of methodology. And in my opinion, it's not intuitive to take it or leave it. But here, just listen to the clip. I'd like to also clarify that this falls under fair use, given that uh, when you're using media for research commentary, uh, educational purposes, etc. It falls under Fair Use Act, and I can use this audio. But if it gets taken down, you know that somebody is trying to thwart what is total fair use. <laughs> These are real women with real lives that they're wa- about to walk back into. And if we don't give them tangible things to take with them, we've done them a disservice. I hate with a passion when people go on podcasts or stand on a stage and they're like, Chase your dream, work hard. And you're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I wanna know what time you wake up in the morning. I wanna know what breakfast you, I need to know the tangible, practical advice. I'm not interested in work hard. I wanna tell people like very specifically what I do to get to the next place in the hopes that you can apply that to your own life. And I never, ever think that anyone's going to sit in my audience and be like, oh my gosh, every single word that came out of her mouth was gospel. I wrote it all down. I'm tattooing it on my body. I'm going to apply it to my life. That's not realistic. But I do believe that everybody in the, that audience is able to find a bunch of new you know, tools to put in her bag. Because it's interesting. She tries to caveat that her advice isn't necessarily for everybody but then gives kind of a, a recipe, a blueprint. She gives tactical things she does to achieve the high-level blanket advice she promotes, but says that she hopes people take it or leave it. And then doesn't isn't really directing it toward anybody specifically to hone in on exactly what this advice should apply to, because listen to who is there. Whatever, you wanna, you wanna run a half marathon, you wanna write a book, you wanna start your own company, you just wanna be a better version of yourself, you wanna go home and be on fire and all those things. This is the best advice that I have. So this is kind of my issue. It's like, I'm giving you high-level advice. I expect you to take it or leave it. I don't expect them to take it as gospel. Then she gives them tactical steps. But do you understand how tactical steps, like when you wake up, what you eat, telling somebody what works for you is confusing because this is not a a (laughs) conference that hones in on who it's for, what vertical it's in. 
you can be uh, there to run a marathon or run a business. Like those are two different things. And personal development is funny to me in this way and almost deliberately high level because the, the advice isn't actionable. And, and having it center on her as the aspiration, it should be about the work and not about the person. And having it just be about her life, it's like a really weird thing where she's attracting people from all walks of life that have maybe nothing to do with her and no circumstances in common with her and giving them these steps, but saying, take it or leave it. But again, they're at a self-help conference. What kind, what kind of people go to a self-help conference? I was reading a research paper about large group awareness trainings, which we're going to get into a little bit later. I'm going to put it in my works cited. It will have an extensive works cited. The four types of people that attend uh, large group awareness trainings um, are one, psychologically distressed. Two, have endured a recent life change, like a divorce, a you know, losing a job. Three, seeking community. Four, a philosophical interest. Philosophical interest, seeking community, you're chill. Recent life change, psychologically distressed, this is a problem. I think I brought up earlier why this spectrum matters and why I find this type of training completely irresponsible. So my issue here is if, if I was in a tough place, if I was at a self-help conference, if she was giving broad strokes advice that could apply to anyone in literally any capacity and telling me to take it or leave it, but I was there to get help. When she gave me those tactical steps, she said, you know, I don't expect people to take his gospel. Um, I'm, I'm looking for solutions. I'm looking for improvement. Of course, I'm going to take it as gospel. I just don't think that's intuitive to them. And I, and while I appreciate her caveating that, I just, I guess my point is, I don't, she can say what she wants, but I don't think the format lends itself to that sort of subjectivity. Because the best way I can think about it, not to trivialize the struggles of women with this dumb analogy, but like, I'm not a great cook. I um, like try, but I don't have the skills. I've always been bad at it. I don't really have a ton of natural interest. And um, whenever I'm, you know, I find a recipe online, you know, after I get through 12 pages about, you know, Mima's tomato soup, I get it. She picked it from her garden. I get it. You know, thanks for the memories. But like, I don't know, you're just trying to get me to see the ads below the fold and I can see right through it. So, yeah, once I can get past soup kids afraid to leave a soup, just get to the recipe um, and I make the food. You know, since I'm already lacking confidence, I don't think I have the skill level. I'm comparing myself to these aspirational people who make beautiful food and I'm already kind of feeling down and out. When I try to cook and follow a recipe, do you think I'm veering from it? Do you think I'm experimenting with ingredients and quantities? God, no, I am following it to a T. That is my best chance at success. I can't experiment when I don't already feel like I have the confidence and, and, and skills and existing ingredients to make something that's anywhere close to the thing that I want to make. So I'm just doing the best I can. But my best chance of success is doing exactly what you do. And I almost see people's different like skill sets and um, places they come from and starting points and financial situations as kind of like the chef's skill level and the ingredients that you have available to you, um, you know, in your pantry as kind of like the danger of everybody coming from a very different circumstance, but giving a very like prescriptive type of recipe and everybody being surprised when they don't have the same outcome because she's completely neglecting to include that she basically has a private chef. You know what I mean? Her aspirational life is perfect and curated for a variety of of reasons that a person with a great deal of, of money and time and resources, you know, will make it look. And she literally gets on stage and just says like, this is what works for me. Get up an hour earlier, have this much water. Like she, she 
it's very weird. It's And a lot of like health stuff is intertwined. It's kind of strange. I'm building toward the Venn diagram because this sort of generalized personal development advice, it being so industry and person agnostic is part of it. But also keep in mind, like if you're in a really vulnerable place or, you know, in my cooking example, when my dish comes out and tastes like shit, who do I blame? Not the recipe. I blame myself, you know, and that's how I think she continuously gets away with it, if I'm honest. Okay, some emails. To set up the Rise Conference, I was at Rise Dallas and Rise Business and RH is all that gross and then some. Had women revealed deeply tragic and awful experiences without trained trauma therapists in sight. I paid $3,000 and got suckered into spending the kind of money for Rise Business with the promise of networking and exposure. She didn't show up to any events and getting a picture with her was obligatory and had a ton of rules. Not to engage with her. Oh, and they didn't provide professional photos as promised. That and she bragged about bumping up prices to, for VIP for a perceived value but no real value. This is when I was sitting in VIP. She told a man he needed therapy because he wanted to start a business and she didn't that she didn't agree with. And yes, I the I own you speech was real and it happened. Dang. Some people said their version had tube socks and not dirty socks. Apparently this is a thing she does. I thought it was like a one-off secret, but like the fact that she openly says that, it was awful. I, I'm embarrassed for being sucked into this nonsense and introducing her crap to my friends. This is another conference that's person that went to a conference and said I attended their marriage conference. Did I know that they had that? They had a block of time during the conference where they talked about sex and they mentioned that they both knew how to get each other off within 10 minutes and that if you and your partner haven't figured that out, it's a problem. Allegedly. Ew. Anyway, that was a big red flag for me. Like, I get it. They had busy careers and have four kids. But if you're just having sex quickly, just to count that you're having sex and it's not exactly healthy. After they announced their divorce, I could easily see that there was a lot of faux intimacy that probably made them think they were connected, even though they weren't. There, there's so many videos of them like talking, like talking about how they make out, and then it's funny because Rachel will say things like, do you, "The video clip I paid, played last time, like, do you guys have friends where they're all over each other on social media and they get divorced?" It's like, w- yeah, your your marriage became the commodity, and it's. I mean, I'll never get over them having a marriage podcast till the bitter end. The fact, like Dave's post saying, "This is a decision we have wrestled with for years and made so much counsel, thought, and prayer," but it's like, wait. <laughs> it's it's like so their advice like the the person that just wrote in like that's bad advice that just showed how disconnected they were it was all for show and like they didn't care to mislead people it's disgusting this is the whole problem licensed professionals who treat marital issues mental health issues therapists they have in, extensive training licenses they have ethical guidelines that they have to follow and when these things have no standards it, the abuse of power, the opportunity is unbelievable. These people are gods to their fans. They are asking them insanely deep, dark, painful, traumatic questions and having to reveal themselves. And they are acting like they have these solutions, but they don't really ever give solutions. Actually, I have another email kind of on that second topic, and I'll get back to Rise Conference. From a person said... As someone who just survived two decades of an abusive marriage, during which my ex-husband and I fought about sex constantly, and I read everything I could about sex to try to find a way to fix what was wrong, found Rachel Hollis's hot take on how to fix your sex, sex life to be offensively simplistic and ill-advised. If I remember correctly, the way she addressed her sexual issues with her husband was to start having sex every day, come hell or high water, and make sure she came every time. I believe that she said she would insist she came first, but I can't check the book to confirm that because I got rid of it as soon as I finished 
reading it. I don't even know where to begin. First of all, any decent sex therapist will tell you that you should try to make sex fun. It sounds like Rachel turned it into one more daily obligation, one more thing to achieve. Check the box. You did it. So, uh, yes, in her sex chapter, she did try to make it more about talking openly about sex and about best sexual practices, but there was no actual substance. Yes, we should all get comfortable talking about sex with our partners. So how? For most people, that's easier said than done. Ugh, sorry, I'm kind of scrolling too. Uh, for any women looking for good advice on sex from someone who's actually qualified to give it, try Esther Perel's books or podcast or read Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Nagoski, uh, thanks for doing a deep dive on Rachel Hollis. I'm so sorry to hear about your marriage. Uh, it just, it, it, yeah, it's so tough, and it makes it all the more real why and important and, and gives context to why this stuff can't be in self-help directing people, whether they stay or go, you know? Uh, this is kind of along the same lines, too. While I'm on this tangent. There's a few that are kind of having to do with this. I listened to the RH episode, and while in general the whole episode resonated with me, I wanted to touch on some specifics you pointed out in regard to Rachel and Dave and how she romanticized the toxicity of their relationship. It called off an engagement in 2019. It was a controlling, manipulative, borderline, emotionally abusive situation. It was by no means an easy decision. And what I want to tie in here is how much I learned, leaned on RH and her G Girl Wash Your Facebook and further the Rise Together podcast in an attempt to fix something that was unfixable. I wasn't safe or healthy. The relationship wasn't. And yet I took RH as gospel at this pivotal time in my life in late 2018 to attempt to fix it because relationships are work and people can change. I was not only convinced by Rachel that the situation I was in could be fixed, but also that it should be fixed. I felt like such a failure when I couldn't fix it until I realized the messaging I had been receiving was wrong the entire time. That I am not required to allow someone to treat me this way because we've made a commitment. And that I don't have to accept an apology time and time again just for the same wash, rinse, repeat to occur. Ugh, thank you for sharing. I'm so, so glad you got out of that situation. And yeah, these like, I'm grateful to those of you that wrote in not just to talk about her, but to also be like very real people in very real situations. This is an easily acceptable way to get advice. Not everyone's always ready for therapy. There's a big stigma attached to mental health. You know, many people, many people's heads and circumstances and reference groups, depending on the way you talk about things. That's why I was horrified listening to people talk about Meghan Markle and saying they didn't believe her. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Everyone, you know, is seeing exactly the way you respond to somebody that is struggling in this way. And you're self-identifying as somebody who doesn't care about mental health or emotions or who, who wouldn't care if this person came to you. You know what I mean? It's just so dangerous. Okay, um, let's get into the RISE conference and like mental health piece. Here's one about mental health in general. Hello, I listened to your podcast for the first time to hear your thoughts about Rachel's implosion. I'm an actual trained licensed clinical social worker, which means I do therapy all day long. I appreciate you acknowledging the role of mental health and the difference between what people like Rachel Hollis do. I watch, listen, skim these people the other way other people gawk at car accidents. So much of what they do is take the most basic tenets of therapy and distill them down without helping people get there. Want to be better? Get toxic people out of your life but without the thought or care as to what function those people serve in your life or what you'll do without them there. There's so much to unpack there. When I first meet my clients, most of them have very clear goals like this. If it was as easy as RH and her ilk made it sound, they already would have done it and wouldn't need my help. Thank you so much for acknowledging people's real mental health needs and the role of mental health care. Well, okay, on that note, and back to what the person said earlier about the RISE conference and the beginning of it, I I can't, when I watched the Made for More documentary, I couldn't believe this. And this is one of the things that I think with this Venn diagram is like one of the dead ringers for what these all have in common and why they can be incredibly manipulative and dangerous. Um, 
Actually, let me read this email that's, that goes into more detail too, and then I'm going to play you some clips from it. Um, I wanted to share that I went to Rise 2020 right before the pandemic hit. You talk a lot about the psychological impact of her content. She made me feel like a failure and that I was letting myself down, even yelling at me that I was enough. Here's my story and experience. I'm a generally happy and positive person, but I've struggled with depression and anxiety for years. I just started therapy before going to this and was unraveling a lot of my past feelings. I also want to note I'm a cisgender white female. I'm 36, grew up in a middle class, in middle class with many opportunities. I went to college, earned a master's degree from a prestigious university. I have a privileged, privileged life. I work in IT and I'm the lead in my department. We are comfortable. I am married and a mom of a six-year-old. My husband has bipolar disorder too. Uh, rise. I went with two other friends. One friend invited me and another friend to go. I was more interested at first in being with my friends, but as my one friend talked more about going the previous year, I wanted to learn more before going. I read the first book, Girl, Wash Your Face, and was hooked. Uh, keep losing my place. We went to Rise in Canada. We were two white women and a black woman. One of the things that concerned me right out was that my black friend would not be supported and hear her stories, but they had changed the speakers and added two or three black women to the program. Me and my white world thought that was acceptable. My friend said when we got there, it's mostly white women. My gut sank because she's right. We went on the first day and damn, the whole thing was so upbeat. I fell right in, loved the positive energy, the connection to women, the authentic authenticity, or so I thought. There was a DJ with like the early 2000s and more recent hits. So we were dancing and singing. We were encouraged and this was exercise and what is 30 mins a day and why aren't you doing that already? Oh yeah, there's like a lot of physical activity and demanding of already of exercising. Then come the phrases and taglines. Be more, girl boss, hustle, don't be dumb. Yeah, there's a big sign that says don't be dumb. At the Rise conference I saw in the documentary, you wouldn't break a promise to someone else. Why do you break them to yourself? Own your past. Other people's opinions of you are none of your business. Never, never, never judge another woman. And it just goes on. I fell hard though. And I had a relation, I had a hard relationship with my dad. I was raised in church. So much of her story was me. I was crying, sobbing, listening to her talk about this. So she breaks you down psychologically, and then I feel you are so vulnerable, and that's when the manipulation starts. She literally walks you through like a, like psychological exercises. There's so much trauma unleashed, and the selling starts. I bought almost everything or type of thing in the pop-up store. I seriously thought about life coaching. Again, I even thought I was I, I thought this even though I was working a full-time job with a family. I still wasn't hustling enough. Jeez, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to find people who were real and open, and this is what she preached. Jen Hatmaker came out and talked about her stuff too. They were referencing Glennon Doyle and Brene Brown. I thought I was in the right place for me to grow. Fast forward to the end, we get back and later that week, everything shuts down. I am home with my family. I have all this time I am not using. Fast forward a month, I am not using this time. My mind starts cycling about how I'm a failure. I'm not enough. Why can't I get this together and do more? I slide into a depression that I have just come out of. My therapist was super concerned when I came back from Rise. We had to go back through so many things and almost start over. I have watched RH over the last year, and when she fucked up last year, I was done. So my interest in following her lasted about six weeks and then fell off. But the psychological impact of that conference has stayed. Thank you so much for writing in um, and illustrating this concept better than I can. Because when I watched the Made for More documentary, that was my fear. And that when the earlier email, too, mentioned, like, the first day of trauma. And that's when my Venn diagram goes off because um, there's something that... Uh, is very common. And I'm not saying this is this, but I am saying it's inspired by this. And later, I'm going to tell you exactly why by tracing it back through Tony Robbins. Um, there's something called a large group awareness training. Think of like Landmark, the forum. Um, Tony Robbins doesn't classify himself as this, but he meets the criteria. 
uh, Keith Vernieri's executive success programs as part of Nexium. This was, these were their marathon sessions. I find what I understand of the Rise Conference to be like a light version of what is a manipulative meeting style, conference style tactic used to sell more products and not it's it's under the guise of of feel good vibes and under the guise of helping you but it's quite literally only serving one purpose to make the person at the top rich and i'm going to prove this to you later but one of the premises of a large group awareness training is uh lgat refers to activities usually offered by groups linked with the human potential movement who claim to increase self-awareness or bring about desirable transformation in individuals personal lives they are noted for being unconventional and often take place over several days that's from wikipedia um, I'm, I'll put all of the things I'm reading in a work cited. This is this one's a blog post from somebody's first large group awareness training on trajectify.com. It says, if you're not familiar with LGAT, think Tony Robbins. LGAT stems back to the mid '60s as a sales training program for one of the most one of the first multi-level marketing companies, Holiday Magic, and evolved into several generations of competing programs like EST, Earhart Seminars Training, Landmark Forum, and LifeSpring. Some consider it to be a cult. While they are very manipulative, no one is drinking any Kool-Aid. My observations were that it is an honest intent to help people couple with a strong push to sell more programming. The, met this the method of training has risks. Over multiple long and late days, they intentionally bring attendees between humiliating lows and exhilarating highs. It is not personalized. Any mental health issues a participant might have are not accounted for in the exercises. In the path to awareness, some people could be damaged. I went in fairly self-aware and psychologically stable. It was a painful and thought-provoking process. I gained insights, grew, and learned about myself, and also picked up some coaching and selling techniques. There were about 100 people who made it through that training, and not everyone fared as well. People with traumatic scars had issues surfaced without any support from properly trained mental health professionals. Others desperately begged fellow participants to help them afford the follow-up training. Awareness was only the first step. You then need to adapt new behaviors, integrate them into your life, be part of the community, further commit, and go to more expensive training. So... He doesn't specify which one he went to. But just to give you some context about, like, there is a linkage to the MLM industry. There is a linkage to Tony Robbins. Uh, this type of training, he, this this person argues, is well-intended, but also meant to sell uh, more courses. Later, I'm going to read some different opinions about this. Some people think it's entirely nefarious. I think there's a spectrum. I, again, am not saying she's running a Nexium-like operation at all, but that's, you know, like I said, the Venn diagram is is identifying these overlaps in one area of overlap. I do think is this type of all-day marathon session training that uh, has an emotional arc of low lows, high highs. And like the person in the email said, you go home and you're the exact same person, but you just experienced all this community. You just experienced all this encouragement. You don't realize it's because your default state was broken down. So it almost was a disproportionate high. When you get home, you're not only the same person, you spent a lot of money. So it's almost lower and you got it. You, you need that hit again. You have to keep going back. And when I first watched this made for more documentary, I was horrified at how inappropriate I felt this exercise was. It's called stand up for your sister. And it's interesting. I should probably read you another perspective. I think it illustrates how, but even further by targeting who this is for and not just getting all vulnerable people in general. Um, and assuming everybody is going to be fine, because, again, the entire problem is making it for people just like her, not considering the intersectionality of women, not only of identities, but also experiences and completely making a program that is advertised to everybody, but is only for people like her. And depending on the spectrum of your trauma is going to impact you very differently. And to this person who wrote this email, I'm not suggesting that anything's wrong with you liking this. 
I watched this exercise on YouTube and was like deeply moved um, because many of the things I hadn't been through. But it, it looking at it from this kind of critical lens, I think about women who have been through these things. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, this person said, I attended my sister and I attended the first Rise Conference in 2017. At the time, it felt like one of the best experiences of my life. We got the conference tickets on a two for one deal, found flights to Austin. Um, for me, the messages from the speakers who were all female, that's good, were what I needed in that moment. Um, I can recognize now that uh, I, as a white woman of privilege, this is why the messages resonated so much with me. But I like to think I'm also self-aware enough to recognize when something didn't fit for me, and I just brushed that aside. Uh, my biggest takeaway from the weekend was a cheesy stand-up for your sister exercise where we anonymously filled out a survey. It was a checklist of various things women may experience. Body shaming, eating disorders, sexual assault, depression, infertility, the list was long. You checked off if it was something that you experienced and when we and we folded up our papers and passed them around the room over up down until it was unclear who your paper originated from we then had to stand up for each item that was checked off on the paper there was not an item in that list that didn't have multiple people standing for it it was a powerful message that we truly are not alone in our struggles again cheesy but at least for me that moment has stayed with me and helped me to form a huge sense of empathy for others um so I wanted to read that because I think it shows like a cup. Some people wrote in saying they were horrified. Some people were moved. Um, and I think both are, can be true uh, because it depends on your circumstances. And this is why you have to be careful with trauma. But in the context of those large group awareness trainings that almost, you know, historically are de deliberately designed to break you down at first to create a disproportionate high and sense of euphoria. I don't know. I think it tracks like, okay, listen to a clip from this exercise, stand up for your sister. You're lit. You like on day one, the first day is, um, own your past. There's sometimes an optional wellness day, day one. It's like health and fitness. Own your past is day one. Own your future is day two. And on day one of own your own your past, it just tracks exactly with its definition of you spend roughly half the time, uh, making people feel inadequate and in own your past. Some of it's motivational. Sure. Uh, but this uh, stand up for your sister exercise, you're handed a checklist with this laundry list of traumatic life events, asked to check them off. You pass it around. And then when somebody has, you know, when everybody has somebody else's paper, they don't know whose it is. They stand up as Rachel calls out the individual traumatic event that could have happened. And you see the volume in the room of women that stand up that have suffered from something moving in theory. I think she was trying to. Uh, uh, she said in the documentary, she was trying to equalize everyone by being like, you're not alone. We all share the same trauma, but not realizing that as a you know, non-medical -me practitioner of, of mental health, she doesn't understand how triggering this can be, the different phases people might be at of, of processing trauma and how without super medical you know, supervision, without this being, without any oversight from somebody who actually has experience in the field of not effing with people's heads, I just, this made me so mad. That just a trigger warning. She's going to list off like a bunch of really difficult things from assault to eating disorders and otherwise. I don't remember specifically. Let me play it. But yeah, skip ahead 30 seconds. And uh, if you don't want to hear a bunch of hard things women may have gone through. We ask you to check any box that applies to you. And the sentences are. It's things like I have been raped. I have been addicted to illegal drugs. I have used food as a way to cope. 
I hate the way I look. They're really hard truths that some of us don't even acknowledge until they're in front of us. And we ask everyone in the room to check any box that applies to them. We ask you to fold it up. And then we ask you, and there's always this moment of panic in the room because people have now just admitted really hard truths that sometimes nobody knows about them. We ask you to hand it to the woman next to you. And then we ask you to pass it backwards. And then we ask you to pass it forward. And we ask you to pass and pass and pass until you don't know where your paper is in the room. And nobody knows where their paper is in the room. And the person holding yours doesn't know that it's yours. And then one by one, we read off the sentences. And we ask you to stand up for your sister. If you won't stand up for your own trauma or your own pain, will you stand up for hers? Will you carry this with her in this moment? Will you stand up and acknowledge what she's walked through? And it is, um, it's really hard. Like, what are you, what? Are you insane? This isn't pref night. This isn't like, this isn't, uh, um, I, we're not like Girl Scouts making sit-upons, eating with mess kits and like talking about, you know, how we're having trouble in school. It's like this almost element. It's like a, it feels like a juvenile, like let's tell our secrets type thing that doesn't take into account like real suffering. And it's just so incredibly dangerous to me. And again, I don't know if I'm being dramatic. I think they thought this was a workaround to not have people experience their own trauma and have someone else stand up for them. The problem is in standing up, if somebody else, you know, checked the box, that they're a survivor of domestic abuse, you might be too. And then you're having to stand up and you're having to think about it and you're having to revisit it. it, it if, if, if Just the sole fact of having to fill out that sheet, you, you, get, you get to a women's empowerment conference. Think about being there for business. What does this have to do with business? And a lot of times, as we've talked about, like trauma is something that you don't always recognize in real time because you're not ready to process it yet. And the trauma is reliving it back as an adult or as an older version of yourself or more mature or knowing what you know now and then reprocessing what you went through in real time. And I'm, anyways, I'm going to talk about this a little later in the context of these when I go into these trainings. But there's like a very common uh, language and content that's used. And one thing that is concerning to me is the way I've heard Rachel, Tony Robbins, you know, who keeps saying Keith Raniere, not that they're the same. But the way they talk about being a victim is is really bizarre and concerning because it's this entire concept that all self-help abides by. Literally listen to anything they're doing. What they're doing is reframing, but they're reframing to serve their own agenda and to sell more shit, sell themselves, sell their marketing tactics that ironically are being used on you to market to your clients. And you think you're learning great tips to manipulate your clients while being manipulated. I just think that if, if it's about helping people and it's about individual impact on their lives. Kind of manufacturing this scenario where everyone's broken down, facing their traumas and already vulnerable people that are coming here for solutions to problems are then reminded that they have more problems. It doesn't serve them. It serves you. And what are these people selling? Like I talked about this, the, the, the entire premise of this Venn diagram is people in positions of power that are in messianic, godlike, uh, you know, idol type 
uh, positions that they somehow get to using themselves as the blueprint for success that they are hanging over these people's heads or perhaps another, you know, non-static state of being that is abstract, like being happy or in the church sense, salvation. You hang this over people's heads. It gives them a disproportionate amount of power because you claim that you have access to this thing that they can never disprove you have access to, but they will never get there. Life has phases. Life has ups and downs. People are going through some real stuff and you're acting like you have some secret that they're missing and taking money from vulnerable people, having a hard time, exploiting their traumas, tearing them down, selling them more shit, bringing them back up the second day with this content babble that I'm going to show you examples of how it's all identical. It honestly makes me sick to my stomach. And later I'll explain why I think this is more nefarious than it seems just based on the history of these types of trainings. We're building the Venn diagram. We're connecting dots, I promise. I just say how weird it is to break for ads and be like, can you believe these clowns out here selling new stuff? Uh, but this is how this platform is monetized. And if you knew how many hours I spent down this rabbit hole, you might think this is justified. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors this week. Both these first two are incredibly relevant, and it is just a coincidence. The first one being my absolute favorite for people that are trying to learn new skills and 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 hone in on their many, many gifts, yet want to do so affordably, and that is Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community that uh, offers membership with meaning, with so much to explore, with real projects to create, and the support of fellow creatives. Skillshare empowers you to accomplish real growth. I think Skillshare democratizes access to coursework in a way that is actually quite revolutionary, and I sincerely mean that. Um, whenever people ask to pick my brain to start a podcast, I send them this very specific course about how to start, how to start a podcast that like tip to tail tells you the equipment, tells you the hosting, tells you the uh, tech and the mic. That one's called how to make a podcast plan and record and launch with success. Or the other thing I get asked a lot is about Etsy shops and there they go. It's that gets that granular. There's a class called building an Etsy shop that sells strategies for e-commerce success, bookkeeping for freelance freelancers, all sorts of entrepreneurship classes all sorts of monetization of your art and or just crafts for joy, watercoloring, illustration. Like I love tools like this that are an affordable price point that aren't gouging you, that are just teaching you tactical skills. And the, I, I like things that come from a variety of sources. And it's just a bunch of different creators and entrepreneurs sharing their craft. And it's just an, it's a really cool community. And I'm I'm not I'm not just saying that. I, I really think that this is the type of stuff people could be leveraging on their own time because it's classes designed for real life. When you compare it with pricey in-person classes or like coaching workshops, it's incomparable. It's it's an annual subscription nets out of less than $10 a month. If people want to self-improve, I never want to discourage that. And if you want to get better at any of your skills, refine any of your uh, gifts that you are inevitably going to need to give to the world because all of you are very talented. Uh, if you want to try out Skillshare, explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash be there in five and get a free trial of premium membership. That's Skillshare.com slash be there in five. Next, we have a very important one, given the uh, subject matter that just is kind of a coincidence. It is BetterHelp. You guys know I love BetterHelp. I think it's a really important company and it's a great company that works to assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist that you, you can connect with in a safe and private online environment within 24 hours. This is not self-help. It is professional counseling. And what's great is you can send messages to your counselor. Um, you can kind of get over. I think there's there can be kind of be a hump in, in feeling comfortable. Not only the difficulty of researching what's in network and you know, going to the waiting room. But I think sometimes, if especially if you're starting out, this is less intimidating. 
And uh, they're committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors, which I think is huge because I do not vibe with everybody I've noticed. Um, And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. I think one of the things I always try to point out, because depending on your area, you might not have access to specialists and licensed professional counselors who are specialized in a whole you know, a wide range of of issues from trauma to sleeping issues, relationships, stress, anxiety, depression, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, um, you know, self-esteem, anything you share is confidential and it's a affordable, convenient, professional resource for therapy that I really believe in. It is not a crisis line, but uh, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to be able to get better help should you want it. And uh, as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash be there in five. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash be there in five. This brings me to my next point. I think the reason this industry is is fascinating and thrives is because the thing, what the RISE conference is, is something called a large group awareness training. It just is. A lot of people are going to tell you that that's not what it is, but it is if you look up the definition. And large group awareness trainings have roots in self-development type conferences. The the other examples would be like the forum and landmark and whatever, and Tony Robbins. And all of these people say the exact same content, like they self-help. It's just everyone repeats the same nine, 10 concepts, especially the Instagram ones like, you know, Jay Shetty and Gary Vee. And you guys know the people. They, they just regurgitate the same stuff over and over. We'll talk about this, but it's all about reframing. It's all about content versus context. It's personal control in that people want you to think that only you are holding yourself back. And and this message runs deep. So there's no accountability on the guru. And it's also like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger type stuff. Maybe, maybe you had to overcome that mountain. So you can just somebody so show somebody you can move there. It's like, okay, there's always going to be another mountain. I'm always going to want to make it move. Always going to be an uphill battle. Sometimes I'm going to have to lose. It's like, yeah, that's cute. That's great advice. I love it. But that's why the one I just said is from the Hannah Montana movie. I'm not using it to build my business. Guys, I've watched so many self-help videos <laughs> over the past couple weeks. They all say the exact same thing. And listen to Rachel talk about the origin of the Rise Conference and how, like, get, like it's crazy to me that people tell people how to build businesses who is it, and they're, the business they've built is the business of teaching people how to build businesses and they don't actually build businesses. <laughs> like I said earlier, the blog, the event planning, like I, I believe all that I don't take the hard work from her at all, but like, it's just, it's, it's super broad. And when she talks about the origin of these conferences, she doesn't cite her experience so much as she cites her curating a, the be, a bunch of self-help she likes and no wonder it's plagiarized. Listen, you know, I think that anytime you're battling anxiety or depression or frustration or anger, or bitterness, or all of these negative emotions, you're living in a state that is less than you could be in. But that's not your job. It's not your job. Oh my God. For the last, gosh, 10 or 15 years, I have been on this journey to read every book, to listen to every podcast, to go to the conferences, to take in as much wisdom and advice as I can for myself. And so what I'm sharing is just what worked for me. Is that not kind of an interesting juxtaposition with what she said earlier in that, like, 
that is not a normal thing for a person to say who is giving professionally counseling, giving advice to other people. It's it's not normal. It's not normal to go to a bunch of conferences and read a bunch of books and call yourself an expert. By that logic, I, I could call myself Taylor Swift. Granted, I know I'm doing an episode about something I'm not necessarily an expert in right now, but it is, you know, just this passing series. I'm not posing as a celebrated Brad Pitt of the cult awareness world, Rick Ross. I love his name's Rick Ross. If you watch the Nexium stuff, you know who he is. Um, you know, it's like... I, it's kind of interesting to hear her be like, yeah, so I'm bringing in all these vulnerable people and giving them really specific advice about what just specifically worked for me in a circumstance where I'm breaking them down and then building them back up and leaving them to go home uh, where they started out chasing the euphoria of the hit they got from the Rise Conference. And therefore, they're going to keep buying my content because these people are not in the business of helping people. These people are marketing machines. But I think she took that experience, went to talk about snoring. Dude. It's just, come on, man. It's not that bad. Is it that bad? What was I saying? So does, I know you guys like take the dog out of the room, but it's he wants to sit in my chair and it's so sweet. <laughs> I don't want him to be lonely. Uh, anyway, so people are paying hundreds, if not thousands, um, for her books and online coaching classes and her seminars and these rise conferences, listen to the podcast, like do all these things. And she's just regurgitating stuff she heard somewhere else. Like, listen, okay, here's a bunch of clips. So there's this concept I became familiarized with. Actually, Liz Gilbert, I really like the book Big Magic. And she talks about arguing for your limitations. And I really liked like the structural, like the way she put that. And I, you've probably heard me talk about that on the podcast. I've skewed, I've probably spewed so much self-help jargon, but the context matters. If, it's, if you're a person just giving people advice and passing, cool. If you're a regular person that gets a lot of different things they like from self-help and curates a selection of things that they keep with them that just help them in life, that's great. But you don't, I mean, like, it's just so different when you're building an empire off of other people's words. And an example is, and where this ties back to my Venn diagram is, okay, um, one thing from like the books of Nexium, Keith Ranieri had executive success programs, which was an MLM uh, that w also had these large format group trainings that also ended up being a sex ring. Um, and he also deployed a lot of tactics that were psychotherapeutic, like Tony Robbins. And one of the verbiage for Nexium that Keith uh, Ranieri, so he largely plagiarized all of executive success programs. This is the MLM part of Nexium. He plagiarized it. It's pretty well known that he plagiarized it from um, Scientology and neurolinguistic programming, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, he also plagiarized a lot of it from another self-help author, uh, Korzybski. And I wrote down from my Nexium research, he was talking about the method of unlearning the deepest causes of our problems, our limiting beliefs. When limiting beliefs are unlearned, people are able to make lasting changes to their emotions and behavior, freeing them to live more fulfilling lives. So Keith Raniere of Nexium, who's in jail for 100 years, um, he stole that from places like Scientology, from an author last name Korzybski of Recreate Your Life. And here's some other clips I want you to hear first being Rachel Hollis. The getting those scars were hard. They're there. They're, they're there, they're a part of you. They will not go away. We cannot ignore them. We cannot pretend that they do not exist. They are a part of you. So let it be your story, not your story of limiting beliefs. 
And that's why I want to show you a few strategies that you can use to overcome your self-limiting beliefs. And that is you've got to change your limiting beliefs. First of all, what is a belief? You know, we think of a belief as a thing when a belief is really a feeling. We shy away and then, of course, we don't say that. We're scared. We come up with a story. So the sort of these negative, these limiting beliefs institute, instigate the telling of bullshit stories. The mistake you might unknowingly be making and therefore sabotaging your own happiness with is allowing yourself to be controlled by your limiting beliefs. So I'd read a quote from Keith Raniere. And that's double fortified. I've not only proven my limiting belief, but I'm right. And that's a big plus for me. Who shoplifted his limiting beliefs from Scientology, who have something called an avatar course. And it's a large group awareness training self-development course that in essence claims to identify and remove limiting beliefs. And it's called belief management. I then played Rachel Hollis saying limited beliefs, um, Brian Tracy, who's the was considered like a no-holds-barred sales trainer. He wrote Eat That Frog and at one point was the country's leading expert on the development of the human potential and corporate performance with proven insights on selling excellence and maximum achievement. The human potential movement is kind of like the origin of a lot of this like culty meeting type stuff. But um, so, yeah, it was Keith Raniere, Scientology, Rachel Hollis, Brian Tracy, um, Tony Robbins, jo Jordan Belfort, who is the actual Wolf of Wall Street. And then you may recognize the last voice. You know, you could say this uh, primordial soup of origin of the corporate self-development movement that encompasses all these people that are connected by beliefs somehow is uh, actually chicken soup because that was none other than Jack Canfield of chicken soup for the soul fame. Or if you've listened to this podcast for a while of Chicken Soup for the American Idol, Soul Fame, a book <laughs> that I found in my husband's like childhood home. And he claims it's not his, but there's no proof it's not his. And in my head, it's really funny to think of somebody cozying up, <laughs> listening to, <laughs> reading Chicken Soup for the American Idol, Soul. That shit got specific. I was showing people on Instagram this week how there was this like cover from the 90s of, that was chicken soup for the 90s. Oh, I mean, it was a 90s version of a chicken soup book. And it was chicken soup for the dieter's soul. And there's a thin blonde woman on the cover holding an apple. And I'm like, how dare you? Man of faith, Jack Canfield, that has religious roots. We'll discuss later. Write these books. Do one for the dieter's soul, as if that has anything to do with our souls. And make this thin woman wearing a crop top. She's lovely, very weather girl pretty, you know, kind of like a medium thick bang and like a swoop, if I remember right. She's holding an apple and the irony of a woman on chicken soup for the diet or soul and this, you know, religious man's book cover when the reason books like chicken soup for the diet or soul exist is because of the impossible standards women are held to because of the patriarchy established by one Eve who was canceled for eating an apple. And now women are on the cover eating an apple to diet because of the impossible standards we are held to. And ironically, that book is going to tell her to eat an apple, but probably not because it's high in sugar. <sighs> I'm allergic to apples. So it's like crazy because I could have saved the entire female. Like if I was just like, no, nah, I'm good. Isn't that kind of funny? <laughs> it's 
Sorry, I'm not trying to make jokes at the expense of anyone's faith, but like the 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 you know colloquial adage of Adam and Eve, it's like interesting because like I would have I would have refused it as tempting as it would have been, but I just I still think it sucks that like she just like somebody offered her food like that's really nice. I would I say yes even if I don't want it or I don't like it. An allergy is really your only shot at, at saying no. I act like those soggy Costco pinwheels at every bridal shower ever are the most delicious thing I've ever had. It's important to be polite. <laughs> what was that? You meant? Oh, yeah. Jack Canfield. Anyways, no, I was just playing clips of people saying the exact same thing. Um, and I would be remiss not to say I, I, I spent many a day buried in chicken soup for the teenage soul. That book slaps. One through four. I think I had one, three, and four. Don't know what happened with two. Maybe uh, the highly sensitive person, the HSP and me, couldn't handle it. Uh, I wish that when I was a kid, I had like a litmus test of like Christian the lion or something. To, so I knew where I was in terms of like, um, like it's a good, if, if you watch Christian the lion with a group of people, who is just like, oh my God, that's so sweet. And who is in utter despair, I think is a really great test of who's a highly sensitive person. And I didn't learn this about myself until last year. And looking up the traits, it's just been revelatory. Needless to say, chicken soup for the teenage soul tugged at the heartstrings. I'm gonna guess two was a bit much for me. I, I likened myself to be a makeshift philanthropist every time I read one of those feel-good stories. I literally thought I was volunteering. I was like, oh my God, these people did something for other people and it was nice. I feel good. I, growing up, I was always very torn because I love the scoop and I love gossipy stuff and I love pop culture and whatever, but I'm also really intense. And it was almost like, I don't know. You know the book Tuesdays with Maury? That 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 crushed me. <laughs> I guess the just yeah, that juxtaposition's like Tuesdays with Maury Povich. Like that's kind of my essence, is I like both. I never knew how to reconcile. A couple more things on like just common themes that I think are really interesting slash like or and or really inappropriate ways to think about mental health. I really hope you guys aren't bored. And this is different from the first one. Um, let's see. This is one that's concerning to me because this uh, this is how, you know, Nexium uh, spoke of victimhood. This is how Tony Robbins openly speaks of victimhood. Um, there's a trend among self-help to uh, reframe trauma, uh, like, uh, like quickly into, you know, are you going to be strong? Are you going to be a warrior? Are you going to be a victim? And it's like, well, some people are victims and there's like a spectrum and like, it takes time to heal from trauma. And I just, I don't like the pressure of somebody needing to be a warrior or like fetishizing that strength in a sense. Like, I don't know how to explain it. I'm not a psychologist, but I just, something about this doesn't sit right with me. And from the first time I saw the Nexium documentary, I remember this because it's one of the tenets of executive success programs, the MLM, that was part of the cult um, Nexium. And again, I'm not saying Rachel Hollis is running a cult. I'm making a point here that a lot of these things have a lot in common. And however indirect it is, it's just more of an argument from my case of uh, all of this, just be, these being giant sales tactics designed to manipulate people. On the worst case, you can call these things like brainwash or you know, on the lighter end, you can call it uh, angling, positioning, manipulation, like, I don't know. But I just think that it's important to be aware of and careful of and that it's not fair to use people's um, hardship and trauma as what I perceive as to be somewhat of a sales tactic. Oh, anyway, sorry. Keith Raniere, the weird volleyball dude from Nexium that's in prison for 100 years. This is the uh, this is the mission statement of his MLM. 
There are no ultimate victims. Therefore, I will not choose to be a victim. It's that aggressive self-reliance that's like, I can't control other people, so I will control how I respond to it, which is fine, but it doesn't work for legitimate trauma. So what Rachel says, we start with, okay, this is where we've come from. This is what we've walked through. And we get to decide right now, does that make us a victim? Or does that make us a warrior? Does that make us strong and bold and courageous and capable of getting through anything because we've already walked through so much? On the low end of the trauma spectrum, do I agree with this? Yeah, sure. If you're like a cast member on Vanderpump Rules and somebody takes all your shifts and somebody's like, oh, Sheena took all my shifts, it's her. And somebody gets the boot to the far, you know, inferior establishment pump. That's like you made it through. You're a warrior. You know, mild example. Do I agree with that in a sense of like legitimate trauma is like glazing over it and trying to make it into some like Pinterest quote of a story? Like, no, that's like just not... It is healing is is that's not it. This is why you need credentials for shit like this. I just I feel like the way it, it, this is another thing that's like in the image of the, what she knows, you know, and I know she had some serious like life trauma happen to her. But I just kind of feel like I don't know, that would be like my, me telling my what's like a dumb story. Like, oh, yeah, I'm seeing some shit. I'm a warrior. I one time I wore Sophie's to a yoga class. Guys, <laughs> this is right after college. I wanted my new city friends to think that I was into yoga, which I absolutely was not. Uh, I had just, I was fresh from Virginia. Virginia gets things like three to five years after New York does. And I'm not saying this to be condescending because Chicago is behind New York. But when I moved to New York, all anyone ever, all we ever did was go to Tasty D, go to Pinkberry, go to, go to, what's it called? Red Mango. And then like two years later, I get to Richmond, Virginia, and everyone's acting like Sweet Frog is, you know, the hottest thing since Tony Robbins, you know, coal walk. I, and then they got blow dry bars like two years after. <laughs> and then they, it was like Froyo, blow dry bars. Um, I feel like uh, airbrush spray tanning uh, soon followed after. Anyway, not important. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. I wanted, I, you know. Yoga had, you know, in Virginia, I think I was probably still doing Taibo. You know, I, like I wasn't hip with yoga. I wasn't in Goop Nation. I know that yoga obviously has very sacred origins beyond Goop. But you know what I mean for like a 21-year-old. Um, and I wore Sophie's. And at the time, I was still like rocking those. That was still normal. I was very much under the, you know, premise of, of uh, you know, the double the role, the closer to God, I guess. And thought that I just looked fierce as hell. And then I get to yoga and then you downward dog and then you like literally lift your leg up to the sky. And what are you going to do in a Sophie short? Sophie's choice. I Because I they I was asked if I liked yoga. Not if I had done it before. And I said, yeah. But then it's like, obviously, if you'd ever been to yoga, why would you wear that? It's just, oh, guys, and I, I think of that and I shudder. Um, anyway, why did I bring that up? Oh, yeah. That 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 felt tough, and it did not make me stronger. <laughs> Sorry, that's a really dumb example. <laughs> What's perhaps weirder is that that is the second time on this podcast that in a format I did not plan, I brought up Sophie shorts, and it just happened to be a situation where I had one of two choices. It's just too easy. Some people call them Sophies. Uh, remember Sakonis, but they're actually pronounced Sakonis? Sakonis were the golden geese of early middle school for me. Much lower price point, much more accessible. You get into adulthood, people get a paycheck, all of a sudden, 
you know, price points where he's like $400. But okie doke. Sorry. This is like just like last time around the one hour mark. I start to get loopy because I need to entertain myself. And I assume I need to keep your energy up. <laughs> Anyways, it's just like all these things are, are, are plagiarized and uh, repurposed. And like somebody in the Facebook group was showing a quote from a Rise conference they went to. And Rachel Hollis is saying uh, comparison is the death of joy. And that's I thought it was ripped off from a Mark Twain quote, but apparently it's Roosevelt. I don't know. People attribute everything to Eleanor Roosevelt, though. Like, isn't she the a woman? A woman is like tea when you put her in hot water. You start to doing stuff. I don't know what the quote is. Oh, that's when she, like, comes to, I don't know. But you guys get what I mean. It, it would be like Rachel Hollis being like, you know, women are like lemons in hot water that I condescendingly drink in the morning and force other people to think they should, too. Uh, like, I respect your journey. I just, like, there's some things like hot water with lemon that, like, make, I just don't know if, like, we'd get along. <laughs> that sounds so unappetizing. You wake up and drink hot, plain water? I just find it fascinating. This also reminds me of uh, Joey. Do you remember that scene from Friends? And then I promise I'll move on. He used a, thes a thesaurus to write a letter and he changed every single word and signed it Baby Kangaroo because his name was Joey. They are human. He was trying. <laughs> he was trying to say they are. <laughs> he was trying to say they are warm, nice people with big hearts. And he said they are human, prepossessing homo sapiens with fully sized aortic pumps. <laughs> I never watch Friends anymore. Okay, sorry. Um, I'll put this, start putting this together. So what I wanted to kind of, what I was trying to weave through, um, and I know this half of the episode isn't as emails heavy, but this is where I want to get through my Venn diagram, and then we'll do all the emails in um, episode two. But I thought the color commentary about Rise was helpful because Rise is a big piece of what may, makes me feel so suspicious of this operation and what makes me want to point out the intentions based on where the influence is from, because, okay, so we have this person who is making this entire business model off of their narrow experience, a person who's allegedly in the business of helping people that put a book in self-help, telling stories, giving anecdotes, using those as a syllabus for how people should live and improve their lives. And the way people live and improve their lives is through these vague messages, like the ones I just shared of limiting beliefs that everybody says in this category, they're carbon copies of each other. They're just repackaged. But the way you get this message to seem exhilarating and fascinating is, you know, you're, you're providing common sense sort of wisdom. That's a lot of therapy speak that can be moving to people because it's counterintuitive to the way we often feel about ourselves, which is a result of having mental health issues like anxiety or fear or, or depression. Like these aren't rational in a, in a sense, right? That's why they're frustrating. Like we, you know, you intellectually can know you're great and know you're made for more and to do all these things, but we can't always help why we feel the way we do. And um, this sort of intellectualizing the, that you can't fix the content of your life, but you can change the content context and you can reframe uh, is what a lot of people do in therapy, but therapies know how to therapists know how to do it um, in a way that is like safe and gradual and factors in, you know, your medical history, among other things. And they have an ethical responsibility to you. Um, I want to revisit really fast the kind of concept of that large group awareness training and this idea of breaking people down, because when you hear those high level concepts that everybody uses, like I said before, of being a victim of limiting beliefs. It's like, that's so generic. Um, but when you're broken down and made to feel 
even more vulnerable than you already were as a vulnerable person going to a place looking for solutions. Um, it's it's artificially putting all of your shortcomings in front of your face that weren't already there. It's it's pointing out flaws. It's reminding you of the things you have been through that you maybe don't want to be addressing right now. Um, and I think and I think this is important as we talked about with um, like you know hustle rise and grind type culture and people just always pointing out what you're doing wrong, whether it's, you know, Netflix shaming, you're calling yourself a victim, you're not rising above it. Like you are destined for greatness. You are a warrior. Like all this sort of speak is so, you know, hearing it and passing in a podcast is kind of like, how is this effective? This is ridiculous. But like, like think about the context of being in a room and seeing all these women, all they've been through, of course, you're going to be empathetic. Like I cried, like, this is another clip from it. And it's just think about think about her talking through this and all all the while I'm going, well, why but why? Why are we doing this? Why does this matter? What why what why are you almost like voyeuristically in, enjoying women experiencing collective trauma together? On one end of the spectrum, I feel bad because it's like sharing is important, not being alone is important. But on the mental health end of the spectrum, I'm like, this is so dangerous. And I know I'm repeating myself, but I just can't get over it. Trigger warning. Skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear her talk about difficult things. To watch. Um, it's, it's, it's hard and it's also incredible. It's incredible because you're watching these people and you're like, how are you still here? You know, when you ask the question, who has lost a child? Who's thought about suicide? Who has suffered severe depression or anxiety or panic attacks and half the women in the room stand up. It's like, it's devastating that there is so much pain and we're all still here. I've, I've been in so many circumstances where some form of this is done and I never really connected it back to situations where people have an agenda. I think about testimonies at the churches and youth groups I went to, the mega churches, the Southern Baptist churches, the church camps, the lock-ins. Testimonies are huge. I'm so sensitive. I, I'll, I'll always cry. I cried watching Made for More. A woman stood up and said that her doctor was kind enough to move her final chemo treatment so she could attend this conference and have community. I could cry talking about it. Like, these people are going through real shit, man. And I had to take a breather. I, literally, guys, it was so hard to watch. Um, there's a video of it on YouTube called Stand Up For Your Sister. It just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm being too harsh of a critic. I don't know. Like, this is what I'm, this is where, where, where I keep waffling. I'm like, I, even though I can never know her intentions, what's hard for me to distinguish is if she knows, she's really thinking about what she's doing. And that's kind of the whole point of being, you know, a licensed medical, you know, mental health professional doing these sort of things, because you would think through how this serves the people more than how it serves you and your business and this like feeling of togetherness that really is only about her. Um, but like, I don't know if her intention is bad or if she's just modeling after modeling it after people whose conferences she've, she's been to who probably do have bad intentions that have deep roots in this sort of um, format to manipulate people. And she's maybe seeing what they're doing as like, you know, boss mogul shit and not realizing that it, the origin is incredibly manipulative. Does that make sense? Like, I think what she's doing is inherently deceitful. And I think she knows that. And I think she knows it's, it's all about sales and it's all about her. But what sometimes I wonder, like, has she thought through this? Like, does she think there's something noble in her just modeling her business after a Tony Robbins? Because like, like the, her tattoo says she just wants to be a mogul. Like, 
so it's like her, I know her intentions are bad in a sense, but when I dig into the origin is when I am like, maybe this isn't really under, that understood or maybe it is and she doesn't care. I don't really know. I I know nothing for certain. I'm just trying to connect the dots, as I said earlier. So to loop this all back together, um, Rachel Hollis, I was these clips I've been playing are from a documentary called Made for More. The tagline of Made for More, her documentary, not somebody else's think piece, she approved this, was uh, Tina Fey meets Tony Robbins, which, you know, as a 30 Rock stan, I think it's safe to say I do not want to go to there, and I think that is a ridiculous comparison, but okay. She calls her, she likens herself to a female Tony Robbins. A lot of people like Tony Robbins, as evidenced by the fact that they pay him $10,000 to yell at them. Hollis also talked about in that blog post that was kind of the origin of the first part of last week's podcast that Tony Robbins was her hero, that she had been to two courses prior and finally went to pay the big bucks for his business mastery class. It's 12 plus hours every single day for five days. Whew. Um... And she, this is a blog post from January 23rd, 2019, talking about her experience in January 2018 at Tony Robbins conference. Girl, wash your face came out in February 2018. So this is right before. And a lot of the emails, I'll try to find one. The people mentioned that they thought this was the turning point for her from like, you are enough relatable mom to like aggressive boss babe. It's also worth mentioning that Rachel said at like an Oprah event that she like spoke at an event with Tony Robbins and he like blew her off and was an asshole to her. So I don't think she's a fan anymore. But at one point she said he was her hero, called herself a female Tony Robbins, says in her blog post that she was inspired to start the Rise Conference as a result of going to this personal development conference. And lest we forget the opener last week, I there's quotes I found on the Internet, for example, uh, an account of going to his Unleash the Power Within seminar. And it said this person's experience was a testimonial I found. Robin's job then is to up the energy in the room or in this case, getting 6000 people, sales executives, marketing professionals and software developers to shout three potent words to each other. Find somebody and tell them I own you. Don't just say it to them. Scream it at them. Make them believe that you own them. Then in another blog post, Five Things to Expect at a Conference, she talks about going, wait, she's, it's from February 5th of 2020. She says, personal growth conferences are my favorite thing in the whole world. And the crazy, crazy thing is I'd never even heard the term personal development six years ago. So that would have been 2014. She said she'd been to a bunch of business conferences, but she went to her first PD conference. And then it fundamentally changed her life and it made her want to create a similar experience that was just for women. Yeah, I just, I have no doubts that she's modeling this after Tony Robbins. <laughs> okay, so what does Tony Robbins do, you ask? The the thing that, okay, my argument is that Rachel said she did wanted to do Rise for Women based off of her experience at Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins, we know, is like one of, an, like one of the early pioneers and an active practitioner of NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, which uh, according to... This PhD I was listening to, he calls them covert hypnotics. It's, 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 it's like a psychotherapeutic tactic that's based on like mirroring people and touching people and reacting to them in a certain way that can um, essentially manipulate them, which is just, we talked about this in the next episode, but I'm going to go over it briefly. Let's talk about what Tony Robbins does. So he, he does not officially call what he does large group awareness trainings, but I think they meet 
all the criteria. And these can be good or bad, depending on your level of trauma is the thing, kind of similar to what we talked about earlier. So I also was reading a really interesting article um, on Medium. I'll put it um, in the works cited as well. It's by a person named Shannon Lee from October 2020. It's, a, it's called It's Time for Self-Help Gurus to Sit Down. And she talked about something that I was not familiar with, but I thought was really important. Um, she talked about just how many people in the personal growth community are grossly ill-equipped at dealing with trauma and suffering. I've discovered that behind the idea of manifesting is an industry that profits off white privilege and the systemic inequalities that perpetuate it. I've witnessed self-proclaimed gurus, light workers, spiritual co coaches, and the like selling the notion of transcending one's emotions and traumas while directly perpetuating the use of spiritual bypassing. I've had my own emotions dismissed, downplayed, and disregarded by so-called experts who charge fees for their services and believe themselves are more evolved than the rest of us. Your mental health is, issues aren't honored. Your trauma isn't honored. The fact that you can't get over it in two seconds isn't honored. These people think they're experts and are holier than thou and have the right to do potentially damaging things to people in the name of whatever they're proclaiming themselves to be enlightened as. And it's really messed up and I hate it. These gurus think self-help could be done in a, couple, a few hours or days. They take a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter approach to self-help. Uh, this is examples are Landmark Forum, NLP, Tony Robbins Seminars, Impact Training, MJB, Silva Mind Control, and there's some others. But the important thing here is what I was researching about the role of the trainers at these things, because I'm just I, I just want proof that like this isn't this this lit, this literally isn't self-help. Like it has nothing to do with it. Like it is just to get one person richer. And this one author named Harley, again, work cited, said, the trainers are motivators. They must use their powerful communication skills to persuade others to believe that A, they, the trainers, know something valuable about fulfilling one's potential. B, the valuable knowledge can be transmitted to the participant in a short time. C, the trainee can expect to reap tangible, even if subjective benefits in a short time. And D, the trainee has only experienced a small taste of the wonderful pleasure and fulfillment that awaits those who sign up for advanced training. In short, the trainers are not just teachers, they are sellers. Their main job is to motivate participants to buy more services. The real money is in selling the idea to others. If trainers who work for Tony Robbins or Landmark Forum could realize their true potential in a meaningful, lucrative way, would they take a sales commission job? Would they work for a guru for a relatively small sum of money while investing in a rather extensive amount of time in the hopes of some sort of breakthrough? No. If they want to reach their true potential, they must break away and start their own personal training program, which is exactly what many of them do. This is why this is the ultimate pyramid scheme. Um... Personal training programs are likely to be successful if only because A, the participants are strongly motivated towards self-improvement and B, the trainers force participants to reflect upon themselves, their lives and relationships. This is what we were talking about last time with putting flaws in front of you, putting problems in front of you, but making you aware of them. Such motivation and reflection will result in either perceived insights or renewed effort to gain such insights. Um, ultimately, the main product being sold by human potential gurus is hope itself. It should be obvious that in itself, it is not a bad thing. We all need hope. Without hope, there is no point in making plans. Without hope, there is no point in a relationship or setting goals. Thus, insofar, particip insofar as participation in LGATs increases one's hope for finding one's way and achieving one's goals, it is good. Even false hope can be better than no hope at all. Of course, this feeling of hope will not last once you leave the arena and are back on your own without the constant badgering and encouragement. The solution you will encourage, you'll, you will encourage to believe lies in taking another course to get re-energized and reactivate that feeling of elation that comes with hope. And when the good feelings wear off again, what then? Depression or take another course? It's your choice. Whew. I'm not saying anyone's definitely doing anything. No one officially calls it any of this. I'm just reading definitions and mapping back criteria of what I see at conferences like Tony 
and Rachel's from what you guys wrote in and from what I've watched on the internet and the made for more documentary and the Netflix documentary, I'm not your guru, but the thing with psychotherapeutic tools is they can be used for good or evil. And Tony Robbins and Keith Raniere both are experts in NLP and you got to hope, you know, it's being used for the right reasons. Um, but I just think it's scary in general when you're not a licensed psychotherapist and you're using tools like this that are grounded in helping people be better salespeople by fundamentally changing the the programming of their minds. Like this, So this is an excerpt from Freedom of Mind Resource Center. I gather it's like a nonprofit uh, to help with like cult deprogramming. And we're making connections, I promise, I'll tie it together. So this was, this person's name is uh, Stephen Hassan, PhD, MA, MED, LMHC, NCC. He's helped thousands of individuals and families recover from undue influence, mind control. With over 40 years of experience, he's sought after as one of the foremost authorities on undue influence and controlling groups and individuals. Steve understands the subject from a unique perspective as both a former cult member and as a clinical professional. And anyway, so this is, I'm going to play some clips and read an excerpt from him because I think that this, uh, the brainwashing piece, the mind control piece, the neuro-linguistic programming piece I keep referring to that I find to be very spooky. Okay, so we connected Rachel to Tony for certain. We talked about Tony's use of these large group awareness trainings and those implications that they have in common. As we build out these bubbles, let's consider, you know, in an extreme sense, what Tony Robbins and Keith Ranieri of Nexium have in common um, outside of just the, you know, verbiage of limiting beliefs and the, you know, Tony endorses network marketing, Keith Ranieri had an MLM, uh, and, you know, the kind of content that's identical, like the way you frame victims and Nexium's mi mission statement being all about, like, choosing not to be a victim. And Tony has so much verbiage like this. Uh, but the other piece that I've alluded to that I want to just explain in a little bit more detail from this uh, PhD who specializes in this is uh, the thing that Tony openly on his website talks about uh, being like a student of. And when, actually, let me play you a clip about NLP. This says what it is. And yes, it is just plain. It's just fundamentally confusing to me. Hence why people don't know what's happening. So some people ask me about NLP, which stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming, because uh, there's a lot of, of it being taught on the internet and in workshops and DVDs. And NLP was created by uh, Bandler and Grinder based on the work of a psychiatrist named Milton Erickson. And Milton Erickson's fame uh, was that he worked with clients who couldn't be helped by anybody else in any other method. And he had a very client-centered approach, and he specialized in what's called covert hypnotic uh, techniques. And I myself learned NLP back in 1980 uh, as part of my research in the whole field of brainwashing and mind control. And I was involved very heavily for a little bit over a year. I was actually trained as a trainer in NLP at that point. And as they were shifting from teaching therapists and, and teachers to salesmen and corporate executives, that was when I, I bailed because I realized that the system is amoral. The organization uh, that are promulgating NLP essentially says, do what works. And so if you are a moral person with integrity, you would never do to someone what you wouldn't want done to yourself. However, there's a lot of people who want to sell a lot of cars or they want to sell a lot of units of whatever product or they want to get somebody to have sex with them who ordinarily wouldn't give them the time of day and these techniques can be used for someone's own greed or self-satisfaction. So I tell people be very, very, very careful 
about NLP covert hypnosis. And don't just go to someone who says, oh, I'm a hypnotherapist. Go to someone who's a trained mental health professional with a license who has to be accountable for their actions, who has ethics and integrity. And Okay, so it's uh, to be fair, there, there are people, there's an argument for this being used in positive ways. Um, like the, I've, like you said last time and earlier, the problem with unlicensed mental health professionals using tactics that are largely psychotherapeutic in that they change the framework or the way in which you view your situations outside of just high-level fluffy advice, the, the risk is it can be used for good or evil. That could be used to manipulate your mind to change it in favor of a way that serves like a guru or change in favor of a way that serves yourself. And that's why I was talking about earlier, the motivation, the intention is important of, is this meant to bolster one person or is this meant to just serve this individual's career? And there's a gray area. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. I think there are many circumstances where maybe Tony Robbins has helped people. I do think you have to consider like, do we know that... It's like if if he's done this to he's had four million people go through his trainings. Like I need data. How many of those people are millionaires? You know, if that's like allegedly the promise of unleashing the power within. Um, but and I thought it was also interesting the way he talked about how you can spot NLP because it's so not clear to me, and I would have no idea this is going on. That shows him doing things like walking up to people on the street, and within a minute they're giving him their wallet, their cell phone, and their house keys. And he's using a, a number of different techniques uh, in that particular scenario, including touching somebody, asking them for directions, and confusing them, and giving, holding their hand longer and not releasing the handshake. There's a hypnotic technique called the handshake induction, where you don't let go of the person's hand. They start getting confused, and you can manipulate that. Like what? <laughs> So, and this isn't like some dirty secret. This is like open knowledge. Um, on Tony Robbins' website, it says, the second most influential mentor in my life came to me in, when I was in my 20s. I met a man named John Grinder, the founder of neurolinguistic programming and communication approach that focus on, focuses on adapting a person's neurological processes and behavioral patterns to achieve specific goals. John introduced me to the concept of modeling. He taught me that if you want to accelerate the tempo of mastery of any subject, you must find someone who's getting the results you want, study them, and do the same thing, because success leaves clues. This is my number one secret in life. This is what I do, curating of success and results, and it's really the magic behind any great mentorship. It's it's so confusing about the messages he hawks, the way people rave and like worship him. And then you read the BuzzFeed expose about all the sexual assault, the way he berates victims of abuse, the way he talks about women saying things like women's biggest problem is that men look men's biggest problem is women are fucking crazy. Direct quote. Does that put like any it's so it's so deeply sexist. Um and not to be an armchair psychologist, this is probably an unfair assessment, but I remember Kate Casey, when we did the Nexium bonus deep dive, she was talking about how uh, people have analyzed Keith Raniere's, uh like relationship with his mom, an abusive relationship from his mom, like to be a huge source of the way he disrespects and degrades women, um, allegedly. And when you hear Tony Robbins' story, he talks a lot about his mom. This is from CNBC. Robbins recalled getting chased out of the house with a knife by his mother when he was 17 and being physically abused by her as a child. If my mom had been the mother I thought I wanted, I wouldn't be as driven. I wouldn't be as hungry. I wouldn't have suffered. So I probably wouldn't have cared about other people's suffering as much as I do. And it made me obsessed with wanting to understand people and help create change. Um, 
And like, yeah, a big part of his story, founders is a partner. Oh, sorry. Robin's the founder of more than 12 businesses, including a five-star Fijian Island resort and a company that makes custom 3D printed prosthetic limbs. Despite some recent negative headlines, these companies generate annual sales of $5 billion. Um, especially considering Robin's atypical path to success did not include attending college. Early on, I developed a simple belief that there's a difference between schooling and education. Uh, I mean, okay, sorry, that wasn't the point. It's just, he's so successful. And I, you know, Rachel Tallis tattoos mogul on herself. Like, I think this is what she wants. And the core of his business is this sort of coaching that I think is like this inception of um, things that kind of help people, but also kind of make them addicted to the thing you're doing because it's rooted in these psychotherapeutic techniques. And obviously it's deeply sad when anybody experiences abuse of any kind, parental abuse. And this is a big part of his story. I don't take that from him and that I don't think sometimes hurt people hurt people. And I think that it's worth considering the degrading way he speaks about in two women, um, you know, famously in April of 2018. Uh, now this posted a clip I'm reading from the New York times. We'll put in my work cited at a, an unleash the power within event on March 15th. Uh, he said, if you use the Me Too movement to try to get significance and certainty by attacking and destroying someone else, you haven't grown an ounce. All you've done is basically use a drug called significance to make yourself feel good. I mean, apparently what happened is Tony, in, at this event that people pay like thousands of dollars for, uh, he praised the casino magnate, Steve Wynn, who's a, you know was then recently like accused of sexual harassment. A woman stood up. Uh, to draw attention to this and who is a survivor of sexual assault herself and said, I think you misunderstand the Me Too movement and Miss Tony Robbins interrupted her and doubled down. I'm not knocking the Me Too movement. I'm knocking victimhood. He said, while, Miss, while this woman might be using the movement productively, you're using it differently than some other people. At one point, Mr. Robbins, who was six feet, seven inches tall and towered over Ms. McCool, put his hand against hers and started pushing her backward. He then asked her why she was resisting him, suggesting that she mistakenly believed that pushing back would make her safer. Later in the exchange, he suggested that women were hurting themselves by speaking out. More than a dozen men in positions of power had told him they hesitated to hire attractive women, even when those women were more qualified than male applicants because it's too big of a risk, seeming to imply that the blame for such situations lay not with the men making the hiring decisions, but with women for making themselves liabilities. Mr. Robbins' remarks were met with sporadic jeers in the arena. When, Mrs. when Ms. McCool responded by saying, I think you do the whole movement a disservice by characterizing, the audience members burst into applause as she continued to speak. Mr. Robbins' argument stuck her particular nerve because similar ones have been used frequently against victims of sexual assault long before the Me Too movement began. Women who re report sexual violence are often accused of seeking attention or criticized for destroying men's career and lives. Um... In a statement, Mr. Robbins, who is known for his infomercial self-help books and big-ticket events, which attendees sometimes walk over hot coals, said his comments failed to reflect the respect I have for everything the Me Too movement has achieved. Oh, yeah, give me a break. So I just want you guys to know who we're dealing with here. I don't need to tell you why that's, like, so disgusting, so upsetting, deeply misogynistic. He, this barely scratches the surface of the way he talks to women. And this person that has, you know, immense influence, I think, just runs a program that is deeply, inherently sexist. And he, uh, you know he kind of uh, gives it this veneer of irreverence that's like the shock value. And I think because he's like a tall, large, overpowering white man, like 
people just are like, think it's such a novelty when I think this shows like the cracks and that hopefully we're moving toward a more empathetic society that does not see victim, like playing the victim in this way. And uh, is like going to call people on this stuff. It's important that we push back because if it's if it's represented as like shock factor of reverence, a way to not go to therapy, a way to not have the stigma of having mental health issues, but go to an event to become a better person, to learn deeply internalized, inherently misogynistic messaging, like this is it's so bad. And these LGATs, one quote I just found that I forgot to say earlier that I think is interesting. Um, so he said that at like the large group awareness training, essentially, even though he wouldn't call it that. Um, and at these trainings, he will use t things like NLP. The thing with LGAT is like landmark. They, it's not necessarily like it's not a downline MLM type thing. The basic, if my understanding is that your friends or relatives like would come up to you and like be like, "Come to this thing with me. Come to this introductory seminar. It's this great leadership thing." It's like the best thing I ever did, the best day of my life, blah, 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 like kind of not really tell you what it was with like extraordinary claims. And then you're met with like insane pressure to join it. Uh, uh, so they're like MLM adjacent, uh, but in an LGAT, only the top of the pyramid, like the very top is making money and everybody else is just completely, completely being deceived. Uh, they recruit and recruit and recruit. And like this, this, you know, organization, these people have like humiliated you, love bombed you, made you feel like you're indebted to them and you work really hard for them. And when you don't produce a return, they blame it on you. And um, it just seems like it's a lot of hustling for and a lot of signing up for more and more classes for what ultimately only makes one person rich. How does this all relate? Well, I told you how MLMs and LGTs are kind of related and people like Tony Robbins both run LGATs, even if they don't officially call them that, uh, but also are on the MLM speaking circuit. And a lot of MLM people go to seminars like this to learn how to be like better at business to, you know, face their fears. But it's just like it's literally just marketing and downline selling. And a lot of um, MLM like, you know, girl bosses, huns and like go to Rachel Hollis's stuff. But her business messaging when like I even look at the agenda for Rise Business, it's like sales 101, marketing 101. Like CRM 101, there's one finance class, but like, again, it's just, it's not business, it's not ground up business. It's like, it, it's just interesting. It's, it's so not geared toward people actually starting businesses. These psychological tactics and formats are very prevalent in MLMs and Rachel and Tony have a lot of overlap with MLMs, but my ultimate argument is a motivational speaking became the ultimate secret MLMs. So a lot of, there's a lot of crossover with Rachel Hollis and uh, MLMs as evidence in the clip I played last week of the people that went to Rise Conference and then were, you know, pressuring their friends to go because they learn a lot of hollow advice that uh, is very prosperity gospel that tells them to work harder, even if the money's not there, work harder and blessings will be bestowed upon you. And it just really matches like the overall MLM vibe. But beyond that, Rachel Hollis has spoken at Arbonne, at Beachbody, at Rodin and Fields twice. Like she speaks of these things. She directly thanked people for promoting her book to MLMs on her Instagram, when Girl Wash Your Face hit a million copies, and just in general, like cult experts, mind control experts, they talk about how 
MLMs have mass meetings with enthusiastic dis- distributors. They get standing ovations. There's mysterious terminology. There's really broad advice, a focus on recruitment, a focus on business, but it's not really business, toxic, positive thinking, the avoidance of any questioning, this like idle tree of the leaders, um, like this encouragement to devote more of their time and energy to the organization or the person at the helm at the expense of their relationships with friends and family, despite the lack of financial success. And that's the exact same thing. I feel like people like Rachel and Tony do, except Tony and Rachel, when you do these like trauma exercises on day one, you literally induce people uh, often referred to as a form of mania or psychosis. There's research to back this up that I didn't even have time to get into because they're like dissertations and I couldn't really process a lot of the science terminology, if I'm honest. Noting the origin of the inspiration of these events to just showcase that they're not really about self-help at all. They're they're ultimately like sales funnels. Um, okay, so uh, to trace back, I keep repeating myself, but it's because I keep trying to explain the flow chart and it's just hard to do verbally. So I apologize for repeating myself. But so this is where we break out the other one of Tony's influences and what kind of brought it together for me. Then I mentioned this on the last episode in terms of how this really is not rooted in um, anything that to me is in good faith, but it's rooted in something that very much sounds like it is. In fact, sounds so motivational and beautiful and benevolent and is, is was well respected in its time and still kind of is. Okay, so let me trace back. Sorry for repeating myself. So, Tony, we have like a web of people. We have a line to John Grinder, founder of NLP, which gives us a line to Keith Raniere, who used NLP and his what? Large group awareness trainings that we talked about that both Tony used that I'm arguing that Rachel models her stuff after. Keith happened to have a uh, cult that used NLP through large group awareness trainings, would sell people more products that ultimately ended up also being an MLM. It was a criminal operation. It was deeply disturbing and abusive, and I'm not comparing these uh, people to him and his plight and his intentions rather pointing out that there are similarities in the tactics used. And this is dangerous, not because people like Tony and Rachel and like, you know, the coaching business being an MLM thing anymore, not because all those people are this evil, but because these tactics can be used to manipulate people to serve a certain purpose. And it's worth exploring if this purpose is to make people rich. It is important to be aware of. So the other mentor Tony Robbins has on his website, like in plain sight, is a man named Jim Rohn. We glossed over this the last episode. And, you know, Jim Rohn, like his legacy everywhere is that he was this like amazing motivational speaker and still seems largely respected in a sense. But if you dig back in his early history, he was he was a full on network marketing motivational speaker. And he worked at an MLM called Abundavita that was then merged with Nutribio. And he was like the top salesman at a pyramid scheme that folded in the 60s. And to add people to his team, to get other boss babes and huns in the 50s and 60s to, you know, pursue this great business opportunity, Jim would go around the speaking circuits and speak about personal success, speak about the difference between profits and wages, and speak to people about how they can't miss this opportunity. He becomes this massive success in an MLM. And his his charisma, where does it come from? Being an evangelical pastor. It's kind of hard to find this linkage because he's revered as this motivational speaker because his MLM folded and then he just, he did like worked doing speeches for Standard Oil. And then he just like for years and years and years did all these beautiful, amazing motivational speeches about like health and wealth and happiness and like people like love him still. Long story short, my entire philosophy about this Venn diagram hinges on this article I found from July 28th, 1962 that links all of this together for me, allegedly. Um, Again, armchair journalism. 
just don't sleep. This is fun for me. Then, you know, I, I know that's an, it's a nail biter. It's a nail biter. Uh, but the good news is if you, if you do bite your nails, uh, you can, uh, fix them beautifully. Thanks to our next advertiser, who I love dearly, which is Olive in June, famous for their unbelievable Manny kit. You guys, I know you you all have been so excited and have tagged me, and I love seeing it, getting your Manny kits from Olive in June. I was so stoked when they partnered with Be There in Five because I love them as a company. I love their founder. I just think it's brilliant. And as we know, I'm not the most artistic with my non-dominant hand. It was uh, it was tough for a while there. And when we went full quarantine, I just thought, OK, we're going to have bare nails for the near term. Then I get on board with all of in Jude and like it just I don't know. It's like it's weird how you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know how easy it was going to be. And they have this proprietary poppy handle that stabilizes your hand and makes painting easy. Their polish lasts like seven plus days without chipping. It's uh, my favorite thing to gift. It's like get a baby mani kit. Not feeling well mani kit. You know, I've been a bad friend and won't call you back, but you hear me talk for two weeks on my podcast. So clearly, you know, my vocal cords are working Manny kit. Um, it's just, it's, it's so great all around you guys. And, uh, you know, salon manis are expensive and they always chip. And this is, it comes out to like $2 a manicure, which is crazy. And I don't know, I'm getting, I'm, I'm going to start to dabble in nail art. I'll, I'll show you on Instagram. It's, you know, going to be a pretty exciting weekend around here. Now that I'm done with all my cult research. Um, anyway, you guys, I love the 11 June Manny system. You will absolutely love it too. You know, try it yourself. Get it for a gift for one of the many upcoming holidays and events now that things have opened up a little bit. It comes with all the tools you need in one box. It's five steps. Their proprietary poppy handle it comes with, you know, a file, buffer, all the things. You will absolutely love it. It is the secret behind salon, salon perfect nails at home, all in one, no guessing, no messy nails, no salon price tag. And now you can get 20% off your first Manny system with my code, be there in five. Your new nail life is here. Get 20% off your first Manny system when you use promo code, be there in five at oliveandjude.com. Here's the guys, they don't, I, I, I don't ever see promos on Instagram. This is a big deal. I'm thrilled. Okay. So this article that is, I'll put it in my work cited that I found that somebody scribed from July 28th, 1962 goes into this bit, this pyramid scheme slash MLM Jim Rohn worked for. And I just felt like uh, this is the thing that gets erased is his history with this and his history with religion. And he's just positioned as the one bubble of like life coach, motivational speaker, along with like a bunch of other dudes that are famous for something similar around that time, which we'll get to. Um, and I just want to read you some excerpts from this article that really tie this all together for me. It's talking about... Nutribio and Bendavita, the MLM that Jim Rohn was a part of. And this article says Nutribio executives who radiate high voltage optimism and positive thinking claim that their business has barely begun. Within five years, will be grossing 300 million a year, says Vice President Jim Rohn, a former evangelical preacher. In addition to the vitamin and mineral pills, Nutribio now markets baby bio for small fry, blah, blah, blah. It's like a bunch of stuff. We have... A product for everybody, from cradle to the grave, says Roan. All the world is waiting for Nutribio. There are two ominous shadows in the rosy world of Nutribio. One is cast by government regulatory agencies and others by authorities in the field of nutrition. Basically talks about how shady all of their um, products are. Then the next headline is how to be a missionary and get rich. There are two important reasons for the meteoric rise of Nutribio. One is the razzle-dazzle marketing scheme, which has been likened to the chain letter get-rich-quick system. The other is an intensive program which takes ordinary people and converts them into high-pressure positive thinkers with a zeal 
of missionaries to convert the heathen. Repeatedly, Nutribio leaders say that Nutribio is primarily a humanitarian rather than a profit-making enterprise. We're not interested in selling boxes of vitamins and minerals, says President Charles Young. We're interested in the customer as a whole man. Vice President Jim Rohn, who spends his Sundays preaching from various pulpits, observes, like the ministry, selling Nutribio is another way of helping people. Um, A huge map of North America dotted with yellow and green pins hangs on the wall above Rohn's desk. The yellow pins indicate where Rohn has delivered sermons. The green pins where he has addressed Nutribio sales meetings. Bob Cummings, movie and TV star who owns a six of the parent... U.S. company explains that he's in the food supplement business because there's a humanitarian thing about me wanting to help people. Money doesn't matter to me. <laughs> the power of positive thinking is another Nutribio prime article of faith. We believe that anyone can have anything he wants. Anyone can be anything he wants to be, says Charles Young. People who fail are negative thinkers. Young describes dozens of case histories of men and women who came to Nutribio as poor, timid, chronic, negative thinkers. We transformed them completely. Everything about them became different. Their dress, talk, walk, even the way they shook hands. Young himself has mastered the art of positive thinking with years of practice in self-education. LOL, self-education, now known as self-help. I'm not as interested in him. Let's get back to Jim Rohn. I continue the discussion about money with Jim Rohn, a slight, wiry man with a prominent nose and deep-set burning eyes. Rohn's eloquence, polished by years of evangelical preaching, can hold an audience motionless for hours. Money is not evil unless you use it for evil, he said. Jesus, he pointed out, commanded us to give to the poor. How can anyone give to the poor if they're poor themselves, he asked. So you understand that, <laughs> the ties I'm making here. Um, how he has a background in evangelical preaching, how he deliberately has a map of where he delivers sermons and he preaches Nutribio, the way he incorporates, in- incorporates things like Jesus into his sales pitches, the way they call themselves a humanitarian effort. And Jim goes on to say, at this conference where they, to prevent lapses in negative thinking, the Nutribio company frequently holds meetings of its sales force. One of its most memorable was held in a Toronto hotel last summer. It lasted all day. It was attended by 2,000 distributors. uh, And it was 90% inspirational, almost like a revival meeting. Um, (laughs) Sounds exactly like a large group awareness training. The next speaker was Vice President Jim Rohn. It's easy to make a fortune if you render a service to mankind, Rohn said. There are billions and billions and billions of dollars in this world. All you have to do is get some of it. He went on, to whom who hath, it shall be given. To whom who hath not, even that miserable little bit shall be taken away. One of the last speakers was Earl Schoff. This, is, this was Jim Rohn's mentor, the president of American Nutra Bio. Regarded as the company's grand... Uh, I can't read that word, of positive thinking. Schof is not unlike Billy Graham in physical appearance and dress. It was Schof who, along with two other men, founded Nutribio five years ago. He told the audience he had been pressuring in, in the pressuring and cleaning business for 20 years, making $100 a week when the Nutribio idea struck him. Everything was against me. I left school in the ninth grade. I'd never been in the food business or spoken in public, but within 12 months, I made $100 to the, due to the power of positive thinking. Again, so this is this man, Schof, who was uh, Jim Rohn's Mentor. So Tony Robbins was mentored by Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn was mentored by Earl Schof. Uh, He said that food supplementation was the first thing he ever really believed in. His religious convictions are expressed through the Nutribio business. We're probably as religious as anyone you'll ever meet, he said. He told me that Nutribio grosses $30 million a year and a fantastic era of expansion lies ahead. Mind you, this is 1962. Uh, I asked Schof how much money he earned annually. He was silent for a few seconds and said... I'm not going to answer that. It will encourage too much uh, negative thinking. I wanted to read that because it shows the roots uh, of the intersection of all four of these areas. It was an MLM 
They talked about being deeply religious. They would hold large group awareness trainings for their employees to encourage toxic positivity and positive thinking. You wouldn't even answer a salary because that was negative. Like what? It's all that kind of manipulative uh, bullshit. And while we don't have a cult-like linkage to this specifically, it pretty strongly dabbles in the three other bubbles. And since we earlier talked about how Tony Robbins has two mentors on his, well, three mentors on his website, but the ones we're talking about, the first was the one to occult linkage because of the usage of NLP. And the second is Jim Rohn, which is a linkage to, remember I was sharing all, like some examples of heady, heavy hitters historically in the self-development space that are primarily motivational speakers, professional development speakers. You know, speak at companies, have these really great legacies, no excuses, uh, eat that frog, chicken soup. When you go to Jim Rohn's Wikipedia and consider all he represents in parallel with Tony having the other linkage to a cult being the other bubble, Jim Rohn, I think, representing the ultimate intersection of MLM, you know, selling something for profit, using prosperity gospel to sell it, incorporating his more extreme religious beliefs, his background as an evangelical preacher, doing it in that format, this company doing these large group awareness trainings, him also posing as a motivational speaker um, and going around the country and doing ha sermons and speeches about making more money, doing the most with your life. But it was all just to sell more NutraBio. You go to his Wikipedia page listed as the people he mentored are Jack Canfield that you can use to overcome your self-limiting beliefs. Brian Tracy. Is allowing yourself to be controlled by your limiting beliefs. Tony Robbins. And that is, you've got to change your limiting beliefs. Who allegedly, according to the pieces we put together earlier, was the model for Rachel Hollis's RISE conference. Not your story of limiting beliefs. I forgot to add in Dave Hollis earlier. If things that, in uncovering that single lie, that limiting belief, that I got to go now. I know I verbally said uh, cult leader, major creep, predator, lead of a sex cult ring. Keith Raniere uh, plagiarizing it from another self-help author, but here he is says, saying it. And that's double fortified. I've not only proven my limiting belief, but I'm right, and that's a big plus for me. We also, you know, Tony and Rachel probably positioning themselves more as, you know, trying to hybrid help people and make money. You know, we also have criminals here, like you heard earlier, the actual Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, citing his, uh, you know, inspiration in Jim Rohn and says, Jim Rohn added that without a sense of urgency, desire loses its value. And of course, we have Jordan Belfort here. We shy away. And then, of course, we don't say that. We're scared. We come up with a story. So there's sort of these negative, these limiting beliefs. Guess who else Jim Rohn uh, mentored? Mark Hughes. The CEO of Herbalife. You ever heard of that? The biggest, worst, probably of them all in terms of a, a pyramid scheme of an MLM. If you've never seen the documentary Better Than Zero, it's that's about this whole situation. Herbalife is a MLM that sells dietary supplements incorporated in the Cayman Islands, reading from Wikipedia. The products have been reported to cause li liver damage. The company has been criticized to operate as a sophisticated pyramid scheme after taking a $1 billion short position in Herbalife stock. They agreed to fundamentally restructure its business in the U.S., but not worldwide, pay a $200 million fine as part of a 2016 settlement with the U.S. Federal Trade Commission following accusations of it being a pyramid scheme. It, I mean, it's 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 like the worst of the worst. I, can't, I don't have time to go into it right now, but Herbalife is some of the worst of the worst. And I mean, the list goes on. The One of the other people that Jim Rohn mentored is named T. Harv Ecker. 
a motivational speaker known for his book, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. I think this dude at infomercials is a, you know, get rich quick scheme. And what were his main tenets, according to his Wikipedia page? That people unwilling to make major sacrifices in order to succeed play the role of the victim. And one theme identified in this book is that the rich discard limiting beliefs while the unsuccessful succumb to them. He's yet another example of a person who was a millionaire, not because he built a business, but because he talks about the belief systems of millionaires. And, you know, just to throw back in the cult and religion piece, not just because of the use of prosperity gospel, not just because of the tie to being an evangelical preacher, not just because of the tie of Rachel, you know, Hollis having started in Christian circles, being the daughter of a Pentecostal minister and citing that as her inspiration for the way she talks with the theatrics and delivery, uh, and not just because of what we find to be the intersection with uh, all four of these areas, you know, leveraging community as a way to get people in, leveraging community as a way to sell products. Um, but also in the event of, you know, far more terrifying reality in that of, you know, I'm, I get nervous saying it out loud because I feel like they have listening tools and I don't want them to come after me. You know, the John, John Travolta religion um, having, you know, uh, LGAT called the avatar that is solely about limiting beliefs and now Keith Raniere of Nexium shoplifted that from that religion and also from um, a man named Alfred Korzybski, uh, who, according to the history of NLP on NLPmentor.com, uh, he first mentioned the term neurolinguistics in 1941 and his work in semantics is what uh, inspired John uh, Grinder, who is Tony Robbins' other mentor. And long ago, Alfred said, recreate your life. He tells a method of unlearning the deepest causes of our problems, our limiting beliefs. When limiting beliefs are unlearned, people are able to make lasting changes to their emotions and behavior, freeing them to live more fulfilling lives. And even though I couldn't directly connect the use of NLP in Tony Robbins' you know, first mentor, John Grinder's vertical, to Tony Robbins' other mentor, Jim Rohn's vertical, just when I thought I couldn't really meaningfully link cults and religions and self-help gurus and MLMs, it turns out the missing link all along was simply me and my limiting beliefs. I read somewhere that they said they all are cookie cutter, but they have different cookie cutters. And I thought that was kind of an interesting way to put it. My point is, I just don't think Rachel Hollis is harmless. Even though, if, even if none of this is like that closely linked, I just think that the general ethos we're establishing here with this Venn diagram shows the toxicity of this message and why we don't need to be falsely positive. We don't need to be under the impression we have full control over our life. We don't need to dismiss our uh, shortcomings and our traumas. And we don't need to be made for more. And we're allowed to watch Netflix and we can just do whatever the hell we want because these people are trying to make you hustle and grind and, and, you know, work yourself into the ground. How evil is it that they want you to waste your precious life away from the things you love that bring you joy, your family and friends to freaking make them more money. It's, it's sick. It's sick. And it makes me so mad. That's why I did all this research. I don't know why else I would do it. I can't justify it. Um, there's something that summarizes this really well from Stephen Hassan, the PhD I mentioned earlier that talked about neuro-linguistic programming that kind of brings this all together. And he talks a lot about how the bite model that people apply to cults can also be applied to MLMs because they're essentially just manipulation tactics to frame your mind into thinking something's a good idea. And I think that's why there's so much MLM rage on the outside because it just seems like such a bad idea and the data is so poor and the success rate is so low and it just seems like so predatory. And it is, but 
that's the, the whole point is they can ref- like the concept of subtly reframing your thinking. You don't have to be like a mad scientist to be able to do this. It's just kind of a communication style that is pretty subtle. And um, I think he summarizes this really well by saying, and this will be in the work cited, in that self-help or self-development groups use self-improvement and counseling to target people and corporations, making claims that by taking their courses and seminars, you will be successful. They exercise an intense group influence that can have a major impact on their members' mental status. Members lose their personal boundaries. They put the leader or guru on a pedestal. Criticism against the leader of the group is met with resistance. These groups will often rent large hotel spaces and run workshops and seminars for many days, often 12 hours a day. These groups are also called LGATs, as we discussed. They promise personal transformation but are not run by trained mental health professionals, nor are there any sufficient screenings done ahead of time to determine if a person is too unstable or fragile at a point in their lives. Very powerful hypnotic techniques are often used in these trainings as well as powerful public confrontations using curse words and other shock techniques. If you wish to get a sense of one of the most financially successful transformational groups, look at Netflix's Tony Robbins' I Am Not Your Guru. Robbins is trained in neurolinguistic programming and he well knows the power of hypnotic words. Don't think of a white horse and you think of one. I am not your guru. And guess what? The second generation children of God woman, you remember, oh my God, children of God, says he says this too in the documentary, he later tells her he will mentor her. It's very upsetting to watch. Followers lose a sense of their personal boundaries, assuming that it's a safe space for transformation. In fact, it's inherently unsafe since the group's boundaries and rules are poorly defined as well. Motivational self-improvement programs and products, including books, speeches, and seminars, and self-help organizations are a $9.9 billion market, according to the independent research from Market Data Enterprises. These groups take advantage of ones that are looking for guidance and assistance by taking their money under false pretenses and exercising coercive influence over their thoughts and emotions. They often encourage you to recruit friends and family. And in the extreme case of Nexium, members sometimes fall under the influence of a charismatic leader, leading participants to harm themselves and or others. Um, you know, Jim Rohn passed away in 2009, a well-loved man with a fortune of $500 million. Um, and it's safe to say everybody in his wake has done pretty damn well for themselves as well. Uh, you know, when you tattoo mogul on yourself and when you model something after a dude that has is kind of the connector between all these influences... It's just hard for me to believe that the, you know, it's all well-intentioned. Again, don't think she's a criminal. <laughs> I'm giving you extreme examples all over the place. But I think the best way to summarize this sort of help, self-help and why my final, you know, point in all of this is just proving why you don't need coaches and you don't need self-help. And I don't mean to make anybody feel sad or like they have nowhere to go, but there's a, a lot of places that, um, and people that, our licensed clinical, clinical social workers do have PhDs, do have some form of credentials to speak to people in a way that is legitimately helpful to your circumstances. And that it's a shame that even, you know, going to therapy or even reading something from a licensed therapist might convince somebody that there's an issue with the stigma of mental health and there absolutely shouldn't be. And I think these people exploit the workaround of not having to take your mental health seriously and thinking that these irreverent methodologies are going to change your life when I think it's important to make sure you're taking care of yourself and your health. And, you know, only going to people that are qualified to help you. Um, And I just, you know, I think that this is kind of an example of how all of these things influence each other. And the um, only thing they have in common isn't the, you know, mass amounts of audiences that they leverage uh, to claim they are helping. I actually think the better thing to do than use my words is to use a former employee of Rachel Hollis because this is a, you know, my secondary research can only go so far. This is a primary linkage. I won't say, I don't know if she wants me to say her name on air, but um, I, I have a highlight on my Instagram at be there in five called RH. 
And I meant to tell you this earlier. I'm annoyed with myself because I had to cut me going further into Rachel's apology. Um, uh, I cut it out of the last episode for time and because it was like a choppy segment because while I was recording, going in depth about, you know, her throwing her team under the bus and her deleting comments from BIPOC educators like Rachel Cargill that were saying really insightful things. And I, I was talking about how she was responding with those question slides. Remember, she was like, was it because I said I have a housekeeper? Was it because I compared myself to these women? That's absurd. Um, and she deleted the post while I was recording. And then when I went back to edit, it was choppy. And I was like, you know what? This has been covered so much this week. Maybe this part's saturated and I'll move forward to my weird Tony, hypo- Tony Robbins hypothesis. But I didn't mean to disregard that as being a really important piece of the story. And maybe I'll add, talks about some of that next week. Um, but I'm saying that because I want, wanted to point you to my RH uh, highlight on my Instagram because it's a collection of women who I think have really important perspectives on why that the video from two weeks ago that was controversial matters, why her why it's so problematic that she was comparing herself to these women of color that were exceptional women that represented their audiences so deeply. They freed them from oppression. Like, and she's compared herself to like Harriet Tubman saying that they're similar in that they're willing to publicly fail time and time again, wake up 4am, work their ass off only to get to the top of the mountain. Um, when that, 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 that was not the mission of people like Harriet Tubman. That, that was not the mission of anybody she compared herself to. Uh, who who else was there? Uh, Malala, Amelia Earhart, Oprah, uh, Marie Curie. I remember in elementary school we had to like dress as a female role model, and I role model, and I think I wanted to be a Spice Girl, and I kind of loved that my mom bulldozed, and, and my middle name's Marie, and she was like, "No, we were gonna, we're going to be a strong female role model in STEM, the woman who founded radiation." And honestly, in retrospect, I'm, I'm thrilled. I love that. Uh, anyway, the, it was so misguided the way she compared herself to these women and it, it's bigger and more in depth than I even went into. And I just want to emphasize the importance of listening to other women's perspectives beyond my own. Cause that's kind of the whole point of not having a bed in a bag perspective. And, uh, you can hear from people that had such important perspectives like Austin Channing Brown and Jam Gamble, um, and also one of Rachel's employees had a really important post that actually, that's what I was going to read. That's why I got on this tangent. Uh, because I think it summarizes it kind of well. I joined the Hollis Co. because I believed in its mission. I believed in the collective impact we could make if we empowered women to know that their voices matter. With every note, every encounter, every conference, I saw that impact with my own eyes. Looking back, I realize now that I attached the work to the wrong person. We weren't in the business of changing lives. We were in the business of elevating one. Before we close, it is worth mentioning that I sound like I investigate things. I sound kind of serious. Um, if you're new here and you do come back, I, I hope you'll give it a chance because to be fair, this podcast isn't always this deep. Um, <laughs> you're probably like, this, is, this bitch, this bitch did an episode about candles three weeks ago. Like just candles, the kind you burn. It just was like a bunch of dip, dip teak jokes. I don't know. I just want people to remember when Bath and Body Works was decorated like a cracker barrel, you know? Anyway, all I ever want, um, is... You know, when something piques my interest, when I think I can add value um, to a passing pop culture story in this incredibly short news cycle that things vanish so quickly. And the half the time, all I ever hear about something is, you know, 160 character hyperbolic 
explanation of what went down. And even though I've avoided talking about Rachel Hollis for so long, um, I didn't want to let this pass because I think there's something bigger and broader here that's affected me. That's affected how I've talked to people on this podcast that I've kind of dismantled throughout the past three years of self-help jargon. That's made me really rethink the way I try to talk to and represent women. That's made me rethink how I want to make it a priority to not just look at how something affects me, but how it could affect, you know, the, the more vulnerable people that might be exposed to it. Um, I think it's awesome that we always want to, you know, be improving in terms of just being better people. I always want to be improving in terms of being a better like leader and speaker and person that has access to a wide audience. Well, I never want anybody to take this podcast that seriously because it's just entertainment. It's just a podcast. It's <laughs> something official. Um, I also live by the mission that, uh, you know, we should be loud and proud about the things we enjoy uh, about the rabbit holy spirit that overtakes us. Am I, you know, a little embarrassed at the volume of research I've done on this just out of leisure, even though I never really planned on doing an episode about it? Honestly, no. It was a great use of time. And it helped me reframe the way I look at self-help because, I, you know, I I worry about uh, people being thrust into financial ruin without proper, you know, expectation management as it relates to time and money that it takes to start a venture. I worry about women who think that they are made for more and are meant to feel insecure and to experience some short euphoria that they had to pay money for. And then they pay more and more money to keep getting it back when they're not making any material improvement because these tactical steps only affect one person's life and can't be, you know, the masses can't subscribe to it. I, 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 I looked at the out in the crowd at the Rise conference and I just, my heart broke. I don't know Rachel Hollis. I don't know her intentions. I don't want to, you know, overstate these connections, but I think the subtleties are there. And I think that what probably started as an honest, sincere venture turned into a money-making one in a sense that uh, when you see a mogul like Tony Robbins able to monetize uh, abstract solutions in this way, and you're a talented speaker, and you already have an audience, and you have some of the background and these religious undertones and prosperity gospel, and, and you've established community, and you want people to feel good on the surface. I believe that she wants people to feel good. I want people to feel good too. And it's so hard to criticize this. And I look like an asshole because it really does seem benevolent. But I just hope that no matter what, if something seems weird, if something affects your mental health, even if everybody around you says that you're crazy, <laughs> uh, always look deeper, always deep dive. I think that it is well worth our time to be very careful about the things we let influence our hearts and minds and the way we behave and more importantly, the way we perceive ourselves. Okay, I have to cut out some footage. I have a long segment, of course, on the LDS church. It's just not it, it's not relevant. It's not tied to them. It's just the fact that Utah is like the most MLMs per capita. And then I'll go, I, you know, I can't help myself. And I always go on like a tithing rant. And I'm going to put a bunch of other cut footage on Patreon when I get a chance. I'm sorry. I just like need to, I'm going to take the weekend. And then I'm going to put up the cut footage sometime uh, between now and part three, which will come out next week. That will be on patreon.com slash be there in five. There's over a hundred bonus episodes and you can enjoy the career night on Sunday where be there in five listeners are going to present about their careers. 
I do PowerPoint parties every two weeks where we flip the script and listeners, you know, do mini deep dives on their favorite pop culture obsessions. And if you want, just because, you know, fandoms aren't always really the, you know, favorable in reviews, it would be really helpful if you liked this series to rate and review five stars. Uh, if that's how you felt about it, obviously, no pressure. Um, and yeah, tag me in your Instagram store if you want to share. I would love to see it. It helps me out big time, and I'm so grateful to those of you that did last week. Um, and next week, I will read more emails. Uh, I wanted to read some to set up the RISE conference, but we will read all sorts of them next week, as many as I can. I'll try to keep my commentary at bay, uh, and I will put that out as soon as I can. And um, if anybody else wants to write in, podcast to be there in 5com subject line RH. And in conclusion, I, you know, think it is safe to say when you don't get mad, you get a then. You're presented with some clarity. And I feel like I have reasonably defended my initial hypothesis, which was of people who are able to hold abstract concepts over your head, like salvation, like blessings, like uh, success, like the entrepreneurial dream, like happiness, like fulfillment, like enlightenment. These things are not static states of being. These things are not commodities for sale. These things are not simple. And these things are chased because they are chronic and uncurable. I enjoy a lot of things that are spiritual and vague and metaphysical and energetic. I, I love exploring these topics and I'm a seeker. I'm interested in the volume of information we can't possibly know in this world. But there's a difference between those that seek and explore and share uh, write books and make money off those. I don't care. There's a difference between deliberately putting yourself in a category, positioning yourself in a certain way, giving yourself to the most vague audience, intentionally making sure they're vulnerable, delivering messages with a sense of aggression and an evangelical fashion that influences them in a format that makes it nearly impossible for people to not experience some sort of euphoria that ultimately leads to some breaking through, sure. And that's why I don't say this is all negative. But we have to consider those who might break down. Especially, yeah, if we're going to categorize this as self-help. And I'll let you go. But it's almost funny, now having talked through all of this, it's like, it's so obvious that they call it self-help for a reason. Um, because... At the end of the day, all of these people ever wanted to do and what they ultimately accomplished was one thing and one thing only, help themselves. And with that, as always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five, I swear. <laughs> <laughs>